Oh my god. Hey everyone, welcome to Artifact number 18. This is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, um, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts, I probably have you covered. Today I'm joined by um, Canadian historian, uh, singer-songwriter, a poet, ballet dancer. I think she said she also did some swing dancing, um, pilot, university professor, YouTuber, podcaster, uh, deadlifter, kayaker, and most recently, um, also a saint and savior. Uh, I, I heard this uh, story recently that uh, Ava uh, Schubert was hiking and she found a, a, a grown man, an adult man that needed uh, help, right? So she literally brought him down a mountain, right? As if he was like a little baby or something. Um, so uh, I don't know, maybe we could get into some of those stories in a little bit, but uh, Ava Schubert does a whole lot of things and we're going to go over some of this material. We're also going to touch on some of her favorite uh, artworks. She's a fan, for example, of T.S. Eliot. So we're going to spend some time going through The Wasteland. It's a poem that I have not covered on this channel before. So hopefully this is just going to be something uh, uh, new for you guys. And it's also, you know, something outside of kind of like my own aesthetic preferences. Um, I think I, I captured uh, uh, some of your internal realities or anything you want to add about uh, who you are, anything else you want to say before we begin? Well, I just want to say that, that that's a very gracious and also uh, eye-catching or ear-catching introduction. I feel a little bit like um, I'm not all those things all the way, all the time. Everything you said is true, but perhaps not equally weighted. But thank you, because it, I mean, it, it's very flattering, but I... I, I feel like uh, I've maybe been overstated slightly. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, literally, they were all factual statements, I think. It's true. It's true. Right? So, um, so at, at a minimum, right, we're not going to be uh, held accountable for any kind of uh, misstatements here. Um, so uh, I, I guess we could start with, like, uh, talking about uh, growing up, how you got into the arts. I mean, some people have very kind of specific stories others don't. Uh, I personally was a, a very kind of late bloomer when it comes to anything, even like barely intellectually related, right? I only started reading books, you know, period, when I was like maybe 16 years old. Um, and the arts came just just soon after that. So um, I, I always like to see uh, and hear of these like, so called origin stories. So like, what, what is your origin story? Well, it's a funny thing. Um... Because in, in some ways, I would identify with you as being a late bloomer, depending on which art we're talking about. But in other ways, depending on, on how you look at it, it goes back a long way. So to explain what I mean by that, um, I, I was into reading very early. I mean, read everything I could get my hands on, including a lot of things that were probably too advanced for, for me at the time. I got into Shakespeare, I think, at the age of 10. And I, I found like the, the Penguin footnoted editions in the library, which was very useful for me because the minute you had a question about a word, there was a little number mm -hmm. and the answer was right there at the bottom of the page. And, you know, his sonnets and his plays, uh, I was fascinated by all that and very quickly uh, became enamored of poetry. And so in part, it was because I had to, I was required to memorize uh, poems as part of my education. 
Uh, and that was a very different kind of education than most people get in the public school system. Uh, so I, let me clarify that by saying I wasn't in public school until the last two years of my, um, of my high school education. Mm -hmm. But uh, th there was a curriculum that we were following and there were textbooks and there was a requirement often to memorize a poem a week. And you'd get things by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but to, to memorize those words is to discover their rhythm and their music. Because those kinds of poems, the ones that you can memorize, you know, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. I remember memorizing that one voluntarily for Christmas one year and reciting it because it was so damn musical. It was mm -hmm. so much fun to mm -hmm. say. It has this, it has this rhythm, it has this lilt, and there is the there's the construction of the rhyme and there's the story that comes out of it. And so I was fascinated with that and exposed to it very early. And then, of course, I, I found uh, T.S. Eliot's Proof Rock, and, and that was that. So that goes back a long way. And I would say that I've been reading poetry since forever and writing it um, pretty much at about the same time. I have things that I tried to write when I was 12. And, and you know, they weren't, they weren't, they were what you'd expect from a 12 year old. But um, it started, you know, that fascination with words and their music very early. But the music and the songwriting, is a very recent uh, thing. It's really in the last seven years that that's happened. Mm -hmm. And that uh, that happened over a pot of oatmeal. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I, was, I was working on these, these lyrics at that point because I, I love jazz. That went back for a, a very long time as well. And so I, I was trying out writing some jazz lyrics, but I was convinced that you know music wasn't something that I did. It wasn't something I could do. Um, any training I'd had in that was extremely rudimentary. Some basic piano lessons when I was a kid so I could accompany my brother on piano duets because he was supposed to be the, the piano player and I was supposed to be the ballet dancer. Those are the arts lessons that I got as a kid, um, which was a great introduction to physical exertion, but it not, wasn't really an introduction to music in, in terms of creating it or participating in it. Um, so... There was one morning I was writing these lyrics and I was thinking, well, you know, perhaps I'll I'll write them and, and somewhere, somehow, someday, someone else who does music can come along and set these words to music and then there'll be a song maybe. Um, and so I was going over these lyrics in my head and I was stirring this pot of oatmeal in the morning and suddenly I could hear music behind the words. And I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, what's, what's going on? And um I knew that it would be gone in, in a second. So I ran over to my computer and I tried to find some free software to download so I could just record my voice, uh, you know, with that music in it, like humming it or singing it so that I could remember. And from that day on, it was like a tap had been switched on in my brain. And when I was started to write uh, song lyrics, I could very quickly um, find... Uh, a melody for them emerging, and then some. And then as I as I went on, uh, it would it would happen the other way around too. So you know that's been a relatively recent discovery. So in that sense, I'm a late bloomer. Yeah, um, I, I mean all that is interesting. Uh, just a, a couple of comments based on what you said. Uh, so first of all, like I, I don't want to undersell myself uh, too much in the sense that like I. I, I definitely was not a reader when I was, you know, like seven, eight years old or whatever, 10, 12, you know, th that came during my teenage years. But um, 
I, I, I do remember just kind of always surrounding myself with, you know, creative writing projects, let's call them. Uh, I, I was lucky in the sense that, you know, I, I had a childhood that was, you know, only quasi digital, right? I, I grew up and I had um, uh, early on, I had a computer. And uh, this was like even, you know, a little bit before the internet, but uh, I remember like turning on this computer and on the one hand, there were like a bunch of computer games, which I was really into. But then on the other, there were like tons of like creative writing, uh, like programs and software on it. And I, I, I spent, um, you know, lots of mornings and nights and, and lots of time that I remember like my brother, uh, like playing games. I, I did spend a lot of time just like straight up writing. Right. And they they kind of captured like a kid's imagination kind of well, because there was stuff like clip art. Right. They, they, they try to kind of make, make, make it more palatable to you. And I would write these like very convoluted stories, very kind of like ornate vocabulary. Right. I would sit with the dictionary and I would try to like, you know, uh, look stuff up. But um, to the extent that I had books around me, maybe I would like try to find words or sentences. But for whatever reason, I was just not into reading, but I also wanted to write, you know, maybe there was this feeling of like, you know, wanting to express myself in some way. But of course, it's only when you get older that you realize like, hey, you know, uh, the only way you could really express yourself in a way that matters is you have to somehow absorb, right, material that people did before you, right? Because most likely, you know, you're not like the most brilliant person coming on the planet right? Uh, you're going to have to sort of um, sharpen yourself against work that came before you. Um, so th there was a, a, there was that aspect. And uh, eventually when I, when I got into reading, right, it, it was a very specific moment. I was, um, I, at this point, I was already into rap music. I remember uh, uh, my first, like, I guess, truly artistic experience was I was listening uh, to this uh, Nas album, Illmatic. It's a classic of uh, early 90s hip hop. And I remember listening to this one song in my headphones when I was 15. And I thought, wow, this is not only well-written, it's just very different from other material. I wonder why I have this kind of feeling. And I, and I would just sit there listening to, to uh, these words. And um, eventually I, I came across this book, uh, which was kind of like, I guess, hip hop adjacent called Soul and Nice by Eldridge Cleaver. It's a, a political book. It's a book written by a, a co-founder of the Black Panther Party. And um, I, I read it in, in two days, which to me was just unbelievable, right? It used to take me a month to read a single book. And from that point on, I was like, I, you know, I, I'm interested in this stuff, right? I, I was always uh, uh, the kind of person that never really left the house too much. I mean, my whole family is like that, you know, going back multiple generations, my great grandmother's like that, never wanting to leave the house, just kind of like, you know, hang out at home. And I, I realized that, you know, even though I don't really care too much about making friends and stuff like that, uh, what if these writers and these names are cropping up in these books? What if they could be my peers? What if my competitors are these people as opposed to like, you know, random people on the street that you're connected to uh, in no more substantive way other than pure happenstance? Right. So um, I, I, I and I kind of took immediately that, you know, one thing that rap has that uh, uh, modern art does not have is it has a, a great sense of competition. Um, it's it, it does a lot in terms of, you know, uh, establishing some kind of hierarchy of, of good, bad and mediocre. And you have a bunch of people that are constantly competing, you know, to be the one, you know, that could say that about themselves. 
And um, I, I remember so soon after I started reading, like coming across novels like Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro, uh, uh, Poetry by County Colin and others. And some stuff that struck me as like really good writing, I, I, I thought, wow, um, for whatever reason, I think that this is great writing. In fact, not think, I know that this is great writing. I know that this is a great novel. I know this is a great poem. And right now I need to establish right myself in a sense where I cultivate the vocabulary where I could uh, uh, explain why something works and why something doesn't work. And eventually, you know, that, that led to uh, trying to write. Um, and, and like you, I was also kind of feeling like, uh, you know, um, there are certain things that I just don't do, right? When I first started writing poetry, I was thinking like, um, okay, I, I, maybe I could do poems, but a novel, that's too long. It's too complicated. It takes too much attention. No way do I have the attention span to write a novel. And uh, like I, I discovered uh, Dan Schneider's uh, website, Cosmoetica, and I saw that, you know, he did all kinds of criticism. He had, you know, essays about culture, politics, you know, history, uh, uh, um, yeah, film. And I thought, you know what, it seems like film is important in the sense that it like some of the uh, greatest art is being done in this genre, in this medium. But that's not me, right? I don't watch film. I don't critique film. But then I started thinking, but, but what, why, why should I feel that way? Like, why should I limit myself? Like, what is it exactly about me that's making me feel like I shouldn't do, the, do this? Like, it has to be some sort of emotional shortcoming, right? It has to be some sort of insecurity going on. There must be something happening that's preventing you from being like your fullest, most comprehensive self. And, you know, like, like soon after, like, like getting over the idea that I wasn't a film watcher. I literally had a book on like all of Woody Allen's films, right? Where I critiqued them, you know, almost scene by scene in a lot of these uh, uh, movies. Um, so, you know, I guess there's a lesson in there about, you know, uh, limits, imagination, the kinds of, you know, strictures that people put upon themselves. Um, and I think that's going to uh, unfold more and more as, uh, uh, as things uh, uh, unfold in this conversation. Um I, I'm going to pick up on that and say that that's a major, I think that that's, that's a very common experience and it, it's iterated differently for different people, but it's a very common challenge is that we kind of have these ideas of who we are and what we do um, and we kind of create our own little box and, and then, and then we stick ourselves in it. And it's, it's, it's wonderful if you've had the opportunity to see that there's more of you outside that box, you know, that you're more than what fits in that box. There, I think there are, there are some people that don't ever manage to get past that. But if you're fortunate enough to have those experiences, then you realize, hey, if, if that happened once where I said, I, I'm not this person, I couldn't do this, but then look, I did it. If you've had that experience once, then you can have it again it's easier to do again because you can say, oh, remember that time when I said to myself, I don't do X? Well, that turned out to be wrong. So maybe I'm wrong over here too. And I think that the first experience that really profoundly uh, brought that home to me at a very important time in my life was actually to do with flying. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was 17 and I'd gotten onto a uh, scholarship program very competitive. You had to do a ton of exams. You, you had to be an all-star student. You had to go through review boards, whatever. But if you got onto this program, and it was a very small program, I think it was only 40 students uh, nationwide, 
you could get your pilot's license and it was a scholarship, so you didn't pay for it. So I'm on this program. I've never seen the inside of the Cessna airplanes that we're gonna be learning to fly. Um, and nine days into that uh, program, my instructor said to me, you know, okay, Schubert, tomorrow you're gonna solo. And I just, I just remember that moment where I kind of looked at him and I thought, he must be out of his mind. Yeah, I mean, he can't be serious, but he, he certainly was. And he's like, yeah, you know, sh show up tomorrow and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll take the airplane up by yourself and, and so on. And I remember going back to my, to my bunk in, in, in the barracks that night and just overwhelmed with anxiety, you know, like, how can this be happening? What if I make a mistake? I mean, I can crash the airplane, which is worth thousands of dollars. Uh, you know, humiliation, disaster, death, I mean, maiming, uh, all kinds of bad things, right? And, uh, and finally, I managed to talk myself down by saying to, my, to myself, well, this guy has taught a lot of other people how to fly. So he's probably not crazy. Therefore, if he thinks that this is something I'm capable of doing tomorrow, maybe he's right and I just don't know it yet. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right? And and that's and that's exactly what happened. You know, I showed up the next day, he handed me the keys, he wanted me to take the airplane up, fly a few circuits, land it, whatever. It was not a big deal. And um that lesson was magnified at the end of the course, which was only seven weeks long. But at the end of that course, they, they basically toss you the keys to an airplane. They toss you some maps and they say, okay, your job is to chart for yourself uh, a route that's going to take 100 nautical miles. And you figure it out. You figure out how much gas you need. You figure out your navigation. You, you adjust for the wind. You figure out who you have to call on the radio, blah, blah, blah. You file a flight plan. And uh, I don't remember anybody checking it. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe. What, was anybody what, supposed to be with you in the plane? No, solo. So now maybe they checked it after you submitted the flight plan. I don't mm -hmm. know. But but I wasn't privy to, to noticing that anyone was double checking it. It's like, okay, here are the keys. There's the maps. File your flight plan with us. And, uh, you know, you, you go fly it tomorrow morning. So I did all of that. I, I got there the next day, and you had to do this to graduate. This is a requirement. So got into the airplane, took off, you know, and I'm up there by myself, and I'm checking my, my navigation against this island and that island and so on, and I'm flying over this uh, this fairly large airport on Vancouver Island. It's, it's uh, Victoria. So I, I'm on the headset just like this, and I'm talking to the tower, you know, um, tower, this is Charlie Foxtrot. Uh, Delta coming in for landing on runway 26 left, blah, blah, blah. And then I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, I'm doing this. There's nobody else in the airplane. This is not a movie. I'm the one with the headset. Like I'm the pilot here. This is happening. Like pinch me. Right. And um, I'll never forget that moment because coming off, oh, coming off that course, uh, it was something that here, here was the circle of things that I thought that I could do. I was standing inside this mm -hmm. circle and that experience just blew it open like this. And so ever since, I'm always looking for experiences that kind of blow that circle open a little bit more because there's nothing as exhilarating as finding yourself on the other side of something that you weren't able to do not long ago. Yeah. Um, one thing I noticed that was kind of funny, I'm not sure if uh, this was conscious or not, or if it's uh, uh, revealing of anything, but as you were saying that story, um, 
you, you, there was a moment where you were like, oh my God, I'm flying this thing uh, by myself. I could crash it and it costs thousands of dollars. Is that really what the concern ought to be that this is going to be an inconvenience for someone else financially, yeah, uh, as yeah. opposed to like, you know, your own death? Um, no, but- no, there's, 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 there's a joke about that, uh, it, you know, in, in, in those kinds of places. It's like, you know what? If you're going to get hurt, then just die because it's less paperwork. You yeah. know, like, like th- these are the kind of jokes. So it was like, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm going to, there, there will be disgrace and there will be financial damage. Mm-hmm. The fact that you yourself might also die in this was kind of the least of your concerns. <laughs> did, did, did you have like a similar kind of um, a set of fears when it came to uh, writing? Because I, 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 I remember like when I first kind of realized that, hey, um, I could actually write poetry well. And here I was like on the cusp of like, you know, starting and then finishing a novel you know, I definitely got the sense of if I, you know, if I keep writing now and if I keep like, you know, doing these novels or whatever else, uh, I really cannot stop because if I stop, I am sort of turning back on what is clearly showed, you know, it showed itself to be the most some substantive part of my existence. And if you turn, you know, your, your, your back on that, uh, you know, I guess for some people it wouldn't matter, but generally speaking, for a lot of people, they they would feel like uh, that that they're just pretty much in a situation where they're going to have to live with with regrets forever, and they're going to have like just cultivating so much self loathing. You know, as the years go on, they're not doing the thing that they know they're supposed to be doing. Um, did you like have any similar experiences when it when you were like crossing that that river, as it were, into a, a writing or, or and songwriting and music or or what? Absolutely yes, um, absolutely yes. Because so so the the songwriting and music thing is only the last seven years, and there's it's a huge learning curve, right? Because you're you're not just writing lyrics and you're making music, but there's a whole other side of things you have to learn to produce albums. I mean, to find to the process of finding a producer and getting musicians and working out arrangements, and you know, like there's a whole bunch of other things. There's the social media and whatever. So there's a whole lot of learning. So there's a lot of energy uh, that is required, um, and there's really no money, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So at a certain point in time, when this is competing in your life with everything else for your time and your effort and your energy. Um, and it's not bringing any money back. You have mm-hmm. to ask some hard questions, you know, like, okay, why are you doing this? You could be doing something else that would bring in, say, more money. And you can use that money to do other things in your life that you might want to do. Um, but you're not doing that. You're doing this. So why are you doing mm-hmm. this thing? And you have to have a good answer to that. And I think most artistic people go through cycles where they have to face this question at various times. And the answer might be different. But for me, it was that it brings such a profound sense of joy and a sense that I'm exactly where I need to be doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing in ways that very few other activities touch. And also when I think about death, when I think about, you know, people that die on the highway on a sunny Wednesday afternoon on their commute home from work, there was nothing wrong with them physically. They just happened to be at the wrong place when some, half drunk person swerved, you know, like I've seen this happen. I've had Mm -hmm. experiences like this that could have been the end of my life. And I know that everything is contingent and that you don't know how much time you have left. So Mm -hmm. 
one, it, it, it's, it's a strong sense for me to be busy doing the things that I think are worth doing and also checking what I'm doing against, you know, the, the imminent reality of death. And, you know, when I'm dead or if I have the chance to kind of look at it coming, maybe I've got a six month diagnosis or, you know, whatever it is. Um, what are what are the things that I'm going to be glad that I did? And what are the things that I'm going to be unhappy I haven't done? And whenever I run that experiment in my head, it's like, oh, I'm so glad those songs are out there in the world and not sitting there on a file in my computer condemned to eternal obscurity, you know, like, uh, and so that that's a big part of my answer. But <laughs> you know, you have to, you have to ask the question. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I mean, all that is interesting. Like I, I have a, a, a few things uh, to build off of that. So, um, you know, there's some, there's someone that I know pretty well. He asked me a few years ago, you know, when I was like in the middle of like another novel, you know, more art projects, more, you know, everything arts adjacent that I'm doing uh, on top of that. And he asked me, well, I don't get it. Why are you doing this if you feel like maybe this novel won't get published or you won't really make uh, money off of it? And to me, like it was it was honestly like one of the most shocking questions that I've ever been asked because uh, I feel like anybody that actually knows me, right or 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 thinks at least that they know me, they would never think to ask something. It's such a silly question. It's like, like it's, it's like, what do you mean why I'm doing this? Uh, if there's no publication, there's no money. Why would I be doing this for money? Is that really what the concern ought to be? Um, and, and it's especially surprising because, uh, I, I mean, this person like grew up with me, like on, on, on hip hop. Right. And, and one of the lessons uh, from there was there's a huge difference between commercially viable music and stuff that is truly well written. We're just trying to do something interesting and different. And we would like, you know, uh, when we were younger, we would go around being proud of this fact. Like, you know, we're listening to something worthwhile. We're not giving our attention to the undeserving. So now as an adult to ask me this question, have you simply like turned back on all of your core values? Yes. It's, a, it's, 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 very, it's very upsetting. It's very depressing. And it's also depressing because, you know, uh, I, mean, I mean, a lot of these people are intelligent people and yet. Um, th this shows you that even with people that are, you know, otherwise intelligent, uh, this is how most people operate, right? This is at the level that they're at. This is how they think. They can't conceptualize something of value that goes beyond like, you know, purely like almost financial concerns or things like fame or like whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and also, uh, so you mentioned, for example, that uh, one of the reasons why you would be drawn to art uh, is, you know, as a creation is the joy, right? Especially when you finish something that is worthwhile, right? This is uh, something that really sticks with you, satisfies you. And this is absolutely true, right? There really is no feeling like finishing a, a novel, right? Finishing a poem, especially if it turns out well, there's absolutely nothing like it. At the same time, uh, while that is true, right, and, and you know, I, I'm always kind of like, I always try to be careful about various human motivations, right, because people always want to, you know, sort of like pretend like they don't have certain motives. I mean, I, I am very much uh, guided by that, that kind of joy, right? It does bring me actual happiness, right, unlike anything else. I'm also motivated by the idea that, hey, you know what? I grew up with all sorts of insecurities. I grew up feeling, you know, uh, that uh, um, 
you know, like there was like no security in my life as well. Like there are things that I had to fear. There are problems in my family. There are problems in the outside world. If I create something of value, at least I could tell the world, you know, I was here, I was worthwhile and look, I'm dead, but you're still reading my shit. You're still obsessed with the stuff that I'm doing. You're probably like trying to research bits and pieces of my life. Um, um, and, 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 you know, all, all that is there, right? Like that, that's part of the motivation. I don't want to deny that, but, uh, I also know for a fact that I, I would never actually go through the process of, of writing and creating if I didn't think that it was long-term worthwhile for, for the world, right? It's true that you're getting some consolation out of personally, like maybe you feel like you're going to be remembered, or maybe you have that joy uh, out of creation, but, um, realistically, the, the most important part of all of this is not really your kind of subjective experiences here. It's not the fact that you feel good while it's happening. It's the fact that you're actually creating something of value for society. And like you mentioned, you're doing it in like the most expensive way possible, because think of the, the time you have to sink into it. Think of the money you have to sink into it. Think of the various kinds of, you know, career choices you have to make that uh, are kind of, you know, open-ended enough that you have time enough to create and, you know, all of that. Um, it, it, you know, it's a very expensive prospect. Like if you think of human beings as these kinds of like utility machines, you know, there's a lot of stuff that human beings can do in terms of pure productivity. A person could single-handedly, for example, save thousands or perhaps even millions of lives, right? And if you decide instead to do something that's kind of opaque, something that uh, uh, has a, a very different kind of value proposition that is much harder to quantify, and yet you know that it's there, you know, there, there, there's a lot of uh, stuff that it does to you mentally, right? Um, you know, even, even for example, having children, right? You're, you're just kind of like th uh, thinking of as, you know, on the one hand, you know, I want to bring uh, kids into this world and I want to, uh, you know, raise them correctly and I want them to propagate my own values, right? Hopefully, or, or rather, you know, uh, you don't want to be so kind of, you know, um, authoritarian about it, but you want them to propagate some set of values that are positive and you think this is going to reverberate through society down the road, right? Hopefully, if people have kids, it's at least part of the analysis that they're making, um, but that's also expensive financially, time-wise, that does take time away from these other concerns that you have, especially artistic concerns. So, um, you know, th these are just the questions that have been, uh, flitting, uh, through my head, right. When it comes to the arts and there, you know, I noticed that they're very rarely discussed, right. You very rarely see art shows or just artists in general, uh, uh, you know, mentioning this kind of stuff, partly because you know, so many people don't even think of the arts as an arena for improvement. It's not an arena to quantify things in. So it's like, if I'm an artist, I just sort of, you know, sit around and I do this or I do that. And, uh, you know, it's all the same anyway, right? It's all of equal value, right? No, but no, but we know better. We as actual good artists know better, right? <laughs> for sure. And I'm going to pick up on a point that, that you were making there. Uh, which is about the, the need to communicate. They, like, yes, of course, it's good that it gives you joy, but ultimately there's got to be a goal there, something you're, you're shooting for that is outside of yourself when you're, when you're doing the creation of whatever it is you're making. And I think that's driven by the need to communicate with other people and to do so in a way that, that is effective and that says something valuable to them and that can continue to speak to them after you're gone. Mm -hmm. And if you've done that, 
then you've succeeded. And the extent to which those things that you leave behind reverberate and speak to people, I think is one of the measures of your success. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, every, there are lots of people that, that like to call themselves artists. And I, I always get a little bit suspicious of people who kind of front load that word and i'm an artist you know I'm yeah oh my god and i'm yeah. sort of like okay yeah you, you right? almost you almost don't want to say it right yeah. i mean <laughs> I, I i mean i like i i was uh uh before i got married i was very big on crafting uh like the most perfect dating ads right in fact i could have probably done it professionally um uh back when like craigslist was like usable for stuff like that like whatever uh and one thing that i avoided i avoided talking about art first of all, like I, I, you know, maybe I would make like poetry references or something, but like, I wouldn't like talk about being an artist and I would especially go out of my way to avoid any dating ads from women that call themselves artists because, you know, there's a lot of shit that I don't want to deal with. And, uh, you know, like, cause like, cause first of all, you know, many people that are artists, right. They're sort of like, uh, they have neuroses, right. They have some instabilities and, you know, I've worked through a lot of this stuff, but I still have some of that myself. So you're dealing on the one hand with that. And then on the other hand, you're dealing with the fact that most likely this partner is not going to be talented, right? So you have this like double-edged, you know, sword of shit, right? Where you know, these are the people that you want to avoid. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I also like don't want to be associated with like the... You know, the people that typically say that I'm an artist, right? Especially, you know, uh, like I'm not sure how it was in previous generations, but, you know, it seems like everybody now is an artist, right? Because it's accessible to everyone. And that's, um, you know, that's also a problem. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just think that that people who are busy kind of wrapping themselves in that label, they they want to borrow this aura from that, from that. And, and that speaks to me already of like, okay, what's what's the insecurity here what's what's the posturing going on here because if you are really someone who's dedicated to that you don't need to tell people if they get to know you at all it's going to be pretty obvious it's kind of like people who go around with like labels on their t-shirts, you know, mm -hmm. if you have to put the word lady on your t-shirt, it's a pretty good sign that you aren't one because if yeah. you were, you wouldn't need to be telling people they would already know, you know, and, and I, I think that art is exactly the same. It's, it's about what you do more yeah. than what you say. And so if I hear someone who's kind of incessantly flapping their gums about it, I'm sort of like, okay, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know about that. And it, it, it just, it just speaks volumes about egotism and about insecurity to me. And I, I like you, I kind of, you know, want to tiptoe away in the other direction. Mm -hmm. I'm not drawn to be like, oh, really? Me too. No, no, yeah. not at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and nothing I'd say. So like maybe now we could transition uh, into uh, some of your uh, albums. But uh, be, before we do that, I just want to comment on the fact that I, I was listening to your interview with, with Dan Schneider. And one thing that jumped out uh, to me was the fact that you use the word communication, then didn't use it again uh, here, right? And, you know, like you're not part of our little, you know, I don't want to uh, sort of put it in deflationary terms and call it an echo chamber, but it's true that people within the cosmetic orbit are more similar to each other than not. And one thing that Dan has always argued is that, you know, art really is and ought to be about communication. It ought to be something that you impart a value to someone else that they could get something of value from. And if you miss that communication part, it means that they can't actually get something of value. Perhaps some people could do so subjectively, but 
you know, there's any given number of subjective experiences that people have. They could have aesthetic experiences, but over a long enough time frame, uh, it's really the objective stuff that tends to remain. So if you have the communication down, then you have something of value. And um, in your interview with Dan, like you, you were mentioning, you know, this word communication, and you definitely had like a very kind of competitive streak to you when you were discussing your lyricism, when you were discussing how you how you craft things. And honestly, like this is the way it's, it's supposed to be. Um, uh, in preparation for this conversation, I was like reading some stuff about T.S. Eliot and uh, Ezra Pound, for example, you know, saying things like, you know, like warning uh, other poets, like keep in mind that poets and writers and artists are very, very competitive. And when you think of applying that to today, that's not really the case anymore, is it? When people talk about, I'm a competitive artist, what they mean is I could sell the most records. I could have the biggest show. I could go to the best gallery. I could make the most money. They've lost exactly what you know uh, it entails. And later on, we're, we're going to talk about the wasteland. Um, you know, if T.S. Eliot is trying to sort of you know, put together thousands of years of human history and respond to it in some way. I feel like the past century alone um, necessitates yet another wasteland that has to invert, right? So many of the things within the wasteland because we've accumulated uh, just an exp almost an exponentially larger amount of baggage just in the century alone. Um, and, and I don't want to be fearful about it, but it does make make me nervous in the classical sense of like being on nerves, right? Uh, thinking about what the next century is going to bring, right? Uh, creates a lot of nervous energy within my heart and within my mind. Um, so, uh, well, let's transition into, into the albums. Uh, so uh, as far as I'm aware, you have three albums, right? One in 2015, 2017, and in 2019. And you just finished recording uh, your fourth album. Yeah, um, two weeks ago. Is, is that going to be an EP as well? Like, How, how long is it going to be? No, it's it's going to be a full length album. Okay. Um, we went in there and recorded nine tracks. Uh, then I decided to cut two of them. So yeah. that leaves us with seven. Um, but, but that's, that's a full length recording and it was a lot of work. I mean, it, uh, we were, I was literally, I put the last vocal recording down 10 minutes before I was in a vehicle heading to the airport to go home. Mm -hmm. That's how tight it was. That's how much work there was, uh, to do. And we did it in, in five days. I arrived kind of in the middle of the day on Monday and I was flying out Friday evening of the same week. So, we were we were working at a furious pace, but I, I'm really happy with what we came out with, and I'm really excited um, to to share that when it's when it's ready. Yeah, so so I, I wanted to talk about um, uh, a couple of your albums. Uh, my 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 favorite uh, that I've heard uh, is uh, Borderless Sky. Um, you wanted to also talk about uh, Hot Damn Romance, which is the one from 2019. But I, I, I do want to focus a bit on Borderless Sky because, I mean, honestly, it definitely has some bangers, right? You definitely got some bangers on this album. Uh, I, I remember that when Dan uh, was discussing it, I'm not sure if you picked up on this, but he uh, misspoke at some point and he called it Bottomless Sky. And my first question, I guess, to you is, which of these two titles do you think is, is better? Because Bottomless Sky is also a very good title. It also plays off of uh, language in interesting ways. I, I, I stick by Borderless Sky um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I, I think a lot of the meaning of that is suggested just, just in the phrase. Mm -hmm. We create borders, we create walls, we create these separate entities, but it's one sky. 
And it doesn't mm-hmm. recognize any of those things. And we all look at it. So there's a sense of limitlessness. There's a sense of kind of the expanding horizon that fades forever and forever when I move, right? To, to mm-hmm. quote um, Tennyson. And that was the idea behind the, the, that album. And of course, there's a song in there that has that title, but it goes beyond the song. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think uh, your your title is better than the uh, mistaken title, but I can imagine like in, in some sort of project that's like especially abstract, perhaps in some way, right? Um, it, it strikes me as a little bit vague, right, to say bottomless. But anyway, I don't want to get too too off track, right? If you notice in some of my videos, right, I sometimes have like six hour videos, right? So I could really, really go off. Um, so I'm glad that we have like a constrained time limit here. Um, so, uh, one, one thing, so like in terms of the, the macro view of uh, borderless, uh, sky, uh, I'd say, uh, from my recall, pretty much all the songs, uh, have something to do with love, um, or romance of some sort. Uh, it, it, like, is that a conscious decision on your part to work within like some, some sort of transit, uh, some sort of tradition or some kind of genre, or uh, do you feel like you naturally fell into it in terms of, in terms of like, this is what's most appropriate to you? Um, you definitely have like tons of inversions when it comes to like the subject of love, the trope of love, which is, you know, which is why, for example, it would be a good album, right. Compared to pretty much anyone else that would do an album about love or whatever, but why specifically are you like constantly revisiting uh, this topic? Well, there are, there are kind of two overlapping reasons. I mean, one of them is that a lot of the, I think about the jazz genre a lot when I'm writing, because that's sort of, my primary source of inspiration and not all the songs on borderless sky are jazz that was that was an album where i kind of you know started to play outside of the the borders of that particular uh box a bit but that's where i started and that's that's what i think about a lot so um most of the songs in jazz are definitely about love. I mean, you can think about a handful of exceptions, but the vast majority of them dwell on that subject. And there's a certain mood and then there's a certain um, set of emotions that that come along with that. And you can be playful about it. You can be mournful about it. You can be sizzling and, and, and sensual about it, but um, they all kind of center around that subject. So in a certain sense, it kind of comes naturally. It's it's implicit, unless you want to consciously deviate from that, which the song Ribbons and Bows kind of does, right? That's mm-hmm. not really about love exactly. It's more about uh, self-image and like who who are who are you doing this these uh, modifications for? So it's it's only tangentially related. But you're right that most of them are about that subject. But also, um, at the time that I was writing that album. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of pretty major stuff going on in my personal life, and so relationships and the associated emotions uh, were very much at the front of my of my brain as well, just uh, just in, in in a personal way, and so that led to uh, you know a, a pretty heavy focus in that department. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm glad that you didn't say uh, you like that you didn't do the Khalil Gibran thing of like, well, actually, I'm writing about love, but it's all really about God, right? Um, I, f- I feel like you know, uh, like lo- lots of people, honestly, they would be kind of uncomfortable 
with the idea of, uh, you know, I'm only working within one tradition, like they, they would find it as, you know, flawed in some way. And, you know, I, I guess you can make arguments in terms of like trying to uh, uh, expand, but there's also plenty of arguments of, of kind of like sticking to uh, uh, what, what you're best at as well and kind of, you know, what you're most drawn to, right? I mean, not every uh, uh, artist can just sort of you know, randomly come across some kind of, you know, uh, stimulus or phenomenon and just sort of say like, oh, naturally this lends itself to uh, an artistic object of some sort. Let me go in that direction. Right. Um, there's nothing like necessitating that really. Um, anyway, like some of the individual songs I wanted to cover. So the opening track uh, is Back Country Blues. Uh, I, I, you know, it, it, in some respects, um, it feels like the lyrics here uh, on this song uh, are uh, a bit more conventional than the rest of the album, but I mean, there's a lot going on there that's kind of like very uh, subtle, right? And you you sort of need uh, multiple listens to kind of see that. So I mean, just the title itself, like backcountry blues, just the invocation of the blues, right? There's this, you know, there's a sense of a sadness, perhaps melancholy. It doesn't have to be literally so. But uh, I mean, it's it's a song that seems happy, right? It's, it's a song where the uh, the narrator is waiting on uh, someone to come uh, visit her. Um, in fact, like you know, there, there's lyrics like you know, I'll you know, like uh, I'm gonna wait for you on this, uh, like waiting for you could catch the Midnight Express. Um, but given like the, the the nature of the song, given the the, the music, like the pure music uh, around it as well. There's also the sense that perhaps this is kind of like a, you know a, a figment of her imagination. Perhaps there's this there's an expectation of a lover coming that is not going to arrive. In fact, like nearer to the end of the song, there's material there that you could like arguably say that um, maybe this isn't happening, right? Maybe uh, or maybe like he's going to come and there's going to be some sort of uh, rejection after the fact. Um, but given that this isn't like really purely spelled out and this was just kind of like my immediate uh, impression, uh, do you think that is an appropriate um, assessment either objectively, meaning like what's actually there or subjectively in the sense that this is what you in fact intended or or how would you characterize uh, that that opening song? Well, I would say that, that your take on it is very perceptive, actually, because I think that if you're just kind of listening to it casually, it sounds like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go here and you'll meet me there and, and, and that'll be great. And, you know, we'll play the guitar and we'll do this and we'll do that. But, but you rightly pick up on the fact that there is no physical meeting in that song and there isn't really the serious prospect of it. And, and a lot of those phrases, the Midnight Express, I mean, you can read that as, as I'll see you in my dreams. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and, and, and that was kind of where I was going with it. As a matter of fact, that, that was one of the earliest songs that I wrote, um, even though it came out, even though I put it on the second album. Yeah, I, I didn't put it in the first album because it, the first album was really me trying to do like classic jazz sounds. And that song mm -hmm. isn't one of those. So I kind of kept it back. And when I was doing the second album, where which had more of a mix of different things, I thought, okay, now is the so the time to put this song in this in this kind of mix. But I'll tell you, that song was was kind of kind of a magical thing because I was listening to some music that a friend of mine had sent me, and it it was called like jug music, like that's the genre, mm -hmm. and I had no idea what this was. But he sent me some links, and I was listening to it, and it really made me think of that kind of like 
bluegrass backcountry hillbilly sound and it and it has a very like summer hot kind of feeling to it and so I was listening to this and then I went to bed and I was just drifting off to sleep and then these words started coming in Mm -hmm. um this you know there's a summer night in Georgia I'll wait for you there and the lilacs Mm -hmm. and you know and and I knew at that point that I had to get up and I had to go to the kitchen and turn on that little light above the stove and grab some paper and a pen and write. And it was like midnight, you know, like I, I was literally drifting into unconsciousness, but I'm now in the kitchen and I got the first two verses and the chorus down. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to bed and I got up the next morning and reviewed it. And then I wrote the third verse and that's how that song came out. But, but it very much partakes of that mental state of dreaming uh, yeah. or of, of a, an imagined place where you could meet this person and, and a meeting that you might long for that may never happen, but you can dream about it. And that's the kind of song that it is to me. So the fact that it communicated that to you uh, is, is very satisfying to me because it's like, ah, okay, I was successful in conveying the, that message, at least to someone who's paying attention, you know? So yeah. that's a great sign. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. In fact, like one of the uh, uh, lyrics that I isolated uh, in my notes to you was the heat is lazing through the cottonwood trees. There's definitely this feeling of like irreality. And uh, it's interesting that you mentioned like going to sleep, like, like I'm not sure if you notice this uh, in your own life, but you definitely get a ton of like interesting little insights mm-hmm. in this kind of like hypnagogic um, thing. Like when you're in this like mid dream state, right? Um, like oftentimes, like if I'm like taking a nap and I, and I'm in this kind of, uh, hypnagogic, like, uh, interim, let's call it, um, you would wake up with this like very sudden insight. And oftentimes to me, like it would be like something related to like mortality or just like productivity. Like you have to do this, you have to do that. Right. It, 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 in a, in, in a way that you don't necessarily get in your, in your waking life. And I mean, th- this is one of the ironies, right? Like in your waking life, you could sort of drift through life, right? But when you tap into some of these dream states, you do often get into this kind of like internal reality, right? That might not be um, uh, apparent to you. And uh, it, it, another thing that I uh, uh, mentioned was, um, so like, it, 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 like, like, so there's this kind of like bellying, like the melody, like bellies, like at least some of the lyrics. And uh, I, I mean, like in terms of uh, predecessors, like people that you've been influenced by, you mentioned names like Leonard Cohen. Um, and uh, I mean, there's a lot of like uh, singers that do this like exceptionally well, right? I, I especially personally love and also just objectively, this is like a, a great little artistic twist when you have uh, the lyrics somehow um, not underpinning, but uh, uh, uh you know, undermining uh, the music or vice versa, right? When you have the the music undermining the lyrics. And I'm not sure if you listen to uh, Elliot Smith, for example, but he has this uh, song uh, called Waltz Number Two. And it's a little bit sad, but it's also, you know, it's a waltz, right? There's a, there's kind of like a dancing quality to it. And at some point of the song, like near the end, uh, he has a lyric like, uh, here it is, the revenge for the tune. And then he goes on and he says, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good. Don't you know that it's well understood? Uh, tell Mr. Man with impossible plans to just leave me alone. Um, uh, uh, basically, like, you know, in, in, in the place uh, uh, where uh, I have what it takes, right? 
Um, and uh, th that kind of uh, tension has always struck me as it it's, it's something that most artists don't think of. Right. But I mean, it's like, well, if you're doing music and you have literally one half of it is the music itself, the other half is the lyrics. Shouldn't you, you know, allow them to cohere in some way, experience tension in some way, you know, jut against one another in some way? Like th this is where, you know, like like so much of the like like when people approach art, they they fail to see that so much of the poetry exists specifically on and because of these kinds of margins. Um, I, I, I guess this is kind of like a long way of me asking, what are your influences beyond Leonard Cohen and C.S. Eliot and some of the other names that have been mentioned here and the interview with Dan? There's a song by a band called Phosphorescent called Song for Zula. And I can't get enough of it. I mean, it's been years since I found that song, but it it has this, it's like a trance inducing quality that it has. It just, it just kind of takes over my mental state at least. And when I, and when I listen to the words, it has this kind of tension you're talking about because the song purports to be about love but he, it's described as, you know, I, I saw love and he came to me, just a killer come to call from some, from some awful dream. Mm -hmm. You know, like when people talk about love, you're expecting to think about heartbreak or the joy or the, or the mushy mushy. But here, a killer come to call from some awful dream. And, and there are other, I mean, there are other lyrics in there, but the, the lyrics are poetic. And and they're vivid and they give you images and they give you uh, a very strong emotional inducement. But if I were to look at this on a page and say, well, how does it work? I couldn't exactly tell you. Mm -hmm. All I know is, is that it does. It has this, this profound override of whatever's going on in, in, in your mind and your mental state. At least for me, when I listen to that song, it's a vibe, you know, like it, it just changes the color of everything for me. And I I find that fascinating. And I think that no matter what genre you're working in, I mean Chet Baker is one of my one of my icons from from the world of jazz. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I I, I, I often put on Chet Baker when I'm writing. Right? The perfect, like perfect, like you know, writing in 45 minute yes. increments, like 45 minutes, just put that on. Forget, you know, forget like a clock, right? When it's done, you're done. You got to go up, stretch, do whatever, right? And then yeah. there's like three or four other albums, same length, right? Yeah. Exactly. But but it does that to your to your, to your mind, right? When you mm -hmm. turn that on, you know that it's going to produce that mental state. And it happens to be one that is very conducive for writing and, and those kinds of things. Um, and and it, it's mood music. Like it's, it's, it's sort of like, I mean... I, I don't really take drugs, but I imagine that, that, that the people who really, do, I don't really take <laughs> drugs. No, I mean, I never have, but okay. uh, fr fr from, from what I gather, you know, people take them to induce various physical and, in, and mental states. Mm. And I think that good art um, has an effect. Obviously it's not as intense. Obviously it's different. I'm not trying to say that art is drugs, but I think that in terms it's more of intense, it's more intense for the right, you know, if, if yeah. you're a, a, a sane person, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
those those are definitely some some additional influences that, and they're very different. I mean, there's nothing phosphorescent and Chet Baker are you know mm. wildly different, but they both have that quality of changing your mental state and of something that you can come back to again and again, and it's going to do that thing for you. And I think that that's one of the things that I had in mind when I was working on the songs in this next album is that there was definitely an emotional state that I wanted really strongly to come through in, in a couple of these songs. And we'll see if I've succeeded or not um, mm -hmm. in based on how people respond to them. But that's one of the things that I look at and admire and say, I want to be able to do that, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it, you mentioned a so song for Zula, like, like treating love in this kind of a different fashion. Um, in your other life, you're, you're a historian and uh, maybe you could briefly comment on this. Like uh, when it comes to uh, the Greeks and Romans, like their, inter their interpretation of love was not exactly, you know, the modern interpretation of love. Love to them oftentimes was treated as a kind of infection, right? It was something that perhaps you wanted to avoid. It was something that uh, had definitely, uh, you know, definitely some po positives, but also some destructive elements. And I, I think of, for example, of um, uh, Caravaggio's uh, classic a painting that's that's been uh, titled in the at least in the modern times, "Love Conquers All." I'm not sure if you've ever ever seen it, but Cupid basically has just come through the window or something, and he's dragged, you know, uh, this uh, uh, this 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 tablecloth and everything that was on it, musical instruments, musical scores. Uh, uh, things that are kind of like artifacts uh, of culture that that humanity has collectively decided to value. That has come like with love right that that is being systematically destroyed right um and you know like capturing these kinds of uh, uh portions of love right capturing you know, perhaps uh you know maybe like infatuation or, or lust or whatever might be more more appropriate to say in some of these situations but um i mean that that's kind of like not only important but it's also very underrated as a technical skill you know as a, as a kind of you know uh, uh artistic lens to sort of you know find an end right you always want to have some kind of end right why you know why am i doing this kind of song as opposed to another kind of song right you want some kind of a a, a hook that's unconventional in that way um uh let me see what else is there oh so like you know moving on um you have this uh, other song that is one of my favorites on this album traces of you uh i mean it's it's very it's very clever the, the writing is very clever it has this kind of um a cole porter uh, kind of vibe right uh, in terms of like um uh, being witty uh, uh, uh the opening is i've got traces of you behind the shine in my eyes. I mean, that, that you know, by itself, right? Traces of you in terms of, like, you know, abstracting away, you know, portions of like, you know, what is it about someone that you love or someone that you're infatuated with? What part of them, right, would you think about when they're gone, right? Uh, it, it, it is the most appropriate way to think about it as traces, right? And uh, I think that's appropriate. Behind the shine in my eyes, right? So, Obviously, you know, people's eyes shine, but specifically here, the reference point is the reason why I have the shine in my eyes is because of this person, right? And all of that gets condensed into a single line, right? It's clever. It's well done. I don't know if other people notice that, but fuck them, right? It's not for them. The show is not for them. And that's perfectly fine. Um, and so it goes on. Uh, though I try to clean them away, no matter how hard I try, my gravity is denied by the lightness I betray. I've got traces of you in the curve of my smile, 
which he lifts without an excuse. It's embarrassing while work is collecting in piles to find my laughter on the loose. And one thing I wanted to ask you about that is uh, you have this um, rhyme scheme here that's like A, B, A, A, B. There's, and also kind of like alternating long and short, there's almost kind of like a slight limerick quality to this song and some of the other songs that you do. Um, what is it specifically about this kind of structure, right? Maybe uh, the alternating lengths or the AB, uh, um, AAB type thing that you think lends itself specifically to cleverness? Because I mean, e even before the lyrics begin, right? Before you even hear the end of the first line, there's like something in your voice that's like a little bit devilish. There's something there that just kind of clues you in that like I am trying to do this like wink and nod, right? I'm going to be clever and you're going to fucking like it, right? Um, but, but like structurally, like what, like what, what, what lends itself to that specific, like in the song? Like, like, did you do that consciously? Do you, do, do, are you noticing this more like after the fact when I mention it or what? I think it's one of those, I think this song, if I recall, was one of the ones that the the melody kind of emerged simultaneously as I was playing with the, the, the first verse, the first stanza. And that happens to me a lot, whether I'm writing poetry or whether I'm writing, uh, you know, song lyrics. When I, when I start writing, I'm not really sure often what, what's, what form it's going to take. You know, it normally starts with a phrase or something that's kind of ringing in the back of my mind. And I know to recognize that, okay, when those, when there's that telltale sign of those couple of words or phrases that just start hanging out back there, I need to get out one of the notebooks that I carry with me everywhere and put it down and then, you know, pay attention and see what else comes out. So normally the first four lines, uh, when they're on the page, will kind of dictate to me uh, where I want to go with it. And so I think with this one, it was the first couple of lines and there was a melody that came with it almost immediately. And so that kind of, you know, to fit with that melody, I would have to frame lines that were going to sort of, you know, rest in the notes and the speed that was there. So I didn't sit down at, at the beginning and say, aha, I want to do, you know, A, B, A, A, B. I, I just sort of, began with a couple of phrases and f and and the first the first verse came out I'm like oh okay so that's the form because I've got a melody now that goes with mm -hmm. it so now I just got to you know figure out uh what the other verses are going to be in this form and you know write a chorus and and that's that's kind of what happened but um because it came out in, in in that tight rhyming way at the beginning I, I thought okay well, let me stick with that and you know it sort of emerged organically but you pick up on a lot of things that that I think uh, are commonly missed. So I appreciate that. And the Cole Porter thing is exactly what I had in mind as well, because when I think of that song, I think of like a Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald style singing it. Like that's the world that I had in my mind when I'm writing it and the style. And that's all about Cole Porter. I mean, they were singing his songbook most of the time. And so those kinds of lyrics, those clever, funny, mischievous lyrics, um, there's a there's a duet that Ella and Louie did. Oh, and the name of it is going to escape me, of course, just at the moment I want it. But it was it was sort of like a, you know some some kind of love. Like a, th th this is like oh you know uh, it's called a fine romance. That's what it's called, a fine mm -hmm. romance. 
and they mean it very ironically. A fine romance with no kisses. A fine romance, my dear, this is. And then and then and they go off, and it's and it's funny and it's witty and it's 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 a lot of fun to listen to. It's mm. very clever, and a lot of songs like that, you know, especially Cole Porter, do that. So. I admire it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, well, first of all, I am trying to do uh, justice uh, by you, right? There would be no point of doing these shows otherwise. But like, it, there's something about like songwriting that's, um, you know, like uh, when I first started writing poetry, I was like, all right, if I could do poetry well, certainly songwriting must be uh, even easier, right? And I, I've never been able to write like a good song, right? It's just very fucking hard, right? This is true, like whether I try to write like conventional songs, rap lyrics, like just nothing really coheres, right? There, there's something about that. Like it's it's a different way of, of viewing some things at least, right? There's obviously commonalities, you know, across uh, all arts, right? But um, you know, there's, there, there, I feel like there's something about this, like that, that always feels like kind of out of reach. Uh, and there's just some finishing lyrics here that, that I want to end this song with that I thought were, um, also clever. Uh, so the way that it ends is I've got traces of you in the fabric of dreams that wrap my starry night. When my eyes open, it seems I see those stars still gleam in the hours of waking light. Um, and I mean, just even that opening, right? I've got traces of you in the fabric of dreams. I mean, you, you hear all the time, like people fucking singing about like, oh yeah, I'm dreaming of like this, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't matter, like, because it's all the same shit, right? Um, but phrasing it in this way, like in the fabric of dreams, you're kind of like, uh, on the one hand, you're, uh, you're lending an additional syllable that's kind of structurally necessary, right? To sort of like cohere with the rest. But it's also not, it's not like a throwaway word, right? It's not a throwaway syllable. Um, you know, oftentimes when people write poetry, they're clearly, you know, trying to like force a rhyme. They're clearly adding, you know, something to sort of, you know, make the syllable count good. Uh, but you know, th this does something uh, else. Um, and, and also like by, by the uh, end of it, right? Like we, in Backcountry Blues, right? I, I mentioned how if you could tap into a, a dream, right? If you could tap into uh, whether it's like actual dream, it's just some sort of interim state, you, you get, you could get a lot out of it, right? You could get insights out of it. And by the way that it ends is in the hours of waking light, right? There's almost something like, you know, if you think of a hierarchy, there's something like slightly inferior here about the waking light, right? Perhaps like there's this, um, you know, if, if you're so in love or you're so infatuate, infatuated or whatever, you know, you do, you do want to like, you know, kind of like go to dream. Like I remember like during my childhood infatuations, fucking love going to sleep, right? Because, you know, like you fall asleep, like thinking about this other person, right? You, 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 your imagination is going crazy. And I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun, right? And I mean, you're communicating the cleverness and the fun uh, in, in, in this song here. Um, I'm not sure if you have anything more to say about that or, or, or what, but um, uh, uh, like, like I said, some real, some real bangers on this album. Uh, I've been listening to a lot the last few days. Um, do you want to get into uh, Ribbons and Bows? Sure. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of a funny one. Cause I almost mm -hmm. think of it as like a country song a little bit, Yeah. like just, just in terms of, of the arrangement and, and the sound of it. And I've not done too many like that. Uh, there's, there's one I released as a single called secondhand love, which is also, I think kind of a country song, but that's like two, right. And in, in terms of all, all the songs I've done, there's not many in that way, but this one, 
uh, it definitely has has that feel. And yeah, it's not really about love. I mean, it's 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 more about appearance and and insecurity and and you know who who are you doing all these things for all all, all this all this enormous menu of personal physical modification that is open to women and kind of pushed at them all the time. Who's it for? Yeah, um, I mean, like some of the situations right in the song. I actually don't have any specific lyrics here uh, on hand, but basically, one of them is like a, a woman who goes to the doctor, right? And she wants to uh, get plastic surgery on her breast, right? She, you know, like uh, you know, the 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 the, the common thing. Uh, one thing that immediately stuck out to me, though, is and I mean, perhaps this is uh, this is something that is a rel relevant and substantive to like musical tra tradition in general, but it's especially relevant to like, you know, the contemporary world, because um, here, like the like the, the 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 people that are doing good are the men. Right. It's the men that are telling these women you know, what the fuck are you talking about? You don't need surgery. You don't need heels. You don't need to do, you know, this crazy stuff, right? You're fine exactly as you are, right? That by itself, like, just for, forget, like, even if you literally, like, do not ever read the lyrics, knowing that that is the conceit in the song, you know that structurally you have made a sound artistic decision. And it's a sound artistic decision because it's a different way of viewing things, right? It's a different kind of in, it's a different kind of hook. It um, allows like different kinds of situations to bloom forward uh, in ways that, you know, other structures would sort of, you know, close off. Um, and I mean, it, it's also like very real in the sense that like we often say in the cosmoetica orbit that uh, art does not, is not necessarily reality in like a crass sense. It's not truth in the crass sense. Uh, Huck Finn, has never existed. Those situations had never trans transpired, but I'm sorry, you could get more understanding of slavery and white black relations reading Huck Finn than you can reading a lot of, you know, history texts because uh, Huck Finn is able to capture this undercurrent of reality, right? The fabric of reality, even if the facts are all out of line or completely made up. Um, and one thing here that captures that fabric is, uh, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, or you must have since you put it into the song, but uh, women are surprisingly bad at knowing what men want, right? Like, you know, the cliche now is like, men don't know what women want. Well, guess fucking what? Women also don't know what men want. Like, I'm often surprised at the kinds of like insane things that are done, whether it's like, you know, like, for example, like plastic surgery, like, like no way, you know, like just, just in, in any, in any kind of universe that I can imagine, like it is always a turnoff, right. To get like extreme forms of plastic surgery um, or, 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 or like you see, for example, like uh, I don't want to get like, like bitchy and snippy here, but like you sometimes see like women on the train that are, uh, you know, maybe like morbidly obese. And instead of dealing with that, they're spending the entire 45 minute commute, like doing their makeup or doing their hair. Right. Or, 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 or like, you know, like, okay, what if, you know, you have some sort of issue where you can't lose weight? Fine. You could spend that 45 minutes, like, um, you know, reading a book or some bettering yourself so that you get a partner that's like actually worthwhile. Right. And that would respect these other parts of you that are, you know, more ineffable as opposed to just pure physicality. 
Um, and, and, and here, like you sort of like, you know, you capture that psychological profile pretty well, right? Like you, like you, you have the men that are like trying to, you know, tell the women, like, just, just don't, you know, just, just don't do this to yourself, right? You're fine as you are. And this actually, you know, th- this must not be very recent because, you know, my, my, my family's from the USSR and my great grandmother, right. Who was born actually around the time of Lenin, uh, she used to say that um, when she was younger, she would always put on put on makeup, and her husband would always say like, "Stop it! Why are you putting on makeup? You're just so beautiful the way you are. You're just so beautiful the way you are." <laughs> but you know, like people don't like oftentimes like between partners, right? Um, people don't want to. This isn't just like a, a man woman thing. Like like both people do it. Like partners oftentimes don't want to believe the truth that is being imparted by their partners, so they. They, they, they go get it right from somebody else. Like, oh, do you think this? Or like, oh my God, I feel so good. You could have the same conversation, you know, with your husband and your wife that they have later on with a friend. And despite identical conclusions being reached in, in both conversations, you know, one is taken a little more seriously because of that kind of distance, right? That's one of the kind of like tragedies of life that, that, that closeness breeds certain problems and, and distance mitigates others. Well, yeah, and and that that's a complicated one because I mean, there, you, your partner is also sometimes a compromised source, right? I mean, yeah. I I give to you the, the the classic cliche, honey, do these pants make my butt look big? No, <laughs> like like what are you gonna say? You're gonna say no because yes. otherwise, right? Yes. So 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 you you have to be suspicious sometimes of what your partner tells you because yeah. they are compromised by proximity and your inability to handle the truth, right? Mm-hmm. So they have to deal with your inability to handle the truth. If you, And everyone has some of that. Some people have much more of it than others. And so if you're one of those people that, you know, doesn't like the answer, but still asks the questions and can't handle it, then your partner may not be giving you always the straight goods because you've yeah. already taught them that you don't want them. So yeah. there's, there, there's that, there's, the, you know, there's, there's that yeah, kind of compromised by proximity thing. But but in, in general, yeah, I mean, I, I think that men who have any brains, um, and I'm fortunate to know quite a few of them, uh, I have quite a number of male friends and five brothers. So, you know, lots of guys that, that, that I spend quality time with. And, and the ones that are in that circle are, are all, you know, people with, with gray matter that works. And they know that, you know, beauty is only skin deep. I mean, you can get a girl who's got all the right curves and all the right places, but if she opens her mouth and nothing interesting comes out, I mean, how much time can you spend with this person? You Mm -hmm. know, so, so automatically, you know, a lot of men know very quickly that, okay, it's nice to look at, but like, is that all, is is that the whole package there? Because we need to have more than that. We we need to have skills and we need to have character qualities and we need to have intelligence, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and all these other things that make up uh, something that becomes profoundly attractive. Mm -hmm. But a lot of women get this idea and I think it's increasingly common with social media um, but your grandmother would have had the, the same thing because she would have seen pictures of movie stars, Greta mm. Garbo or whoever it was, you know, and there are these dramatic lighting and they've got the makeup just so and the eyebrows plucked, you know, really, really thin. And uh, all, there's a certain image and that's held up as, oh, wow, like universally acknowledged to be a beautiful woman. That is what beautiful is. And so women have this problem where they're like, well, that if that's what beauty is, 
and that's what men are attracted to, then the more I look like that, the better off I'll be. And and it's it's only part of the truth, right? I mean, that's that's a beautiful appearance, but that's only part of what constitutes attraction. And you could have a great appearance, but if you're a jerk mm-hmm. uh, or, or an idiot, then it's not going to get you that far. But images don't teach us that. And so I think a lot of people, and increasingly now, when we're living in an absolutely image-saturated culture, you know, on Instagram and so on, we're inundated with the images and like the valuation attached to them. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. This is desirable. And so it's this very one dimensional kind of line that women are encouraged to measure themselves against. And so they're putting all this energy and all this focus into that. But as you point out, I mean, you know, if you're morbidly obese, but, but you're sitting there, you know, working on your eyeshadow, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's not really your best strategy. Like if, if you had 10 units of energy to invest in, uh, in your attractiveness, that's not how they're best spent. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, it's just that I, I think that, that people are just focused on this really one dimensional thing and it's very lopsided. And so there's increasing emphasis on plastic surgery at younger and younger ages. It's, it's kind of ballooning around the world. And then there's this thing about sameness. I mean, uh, students of mine uh, sometimes make jokes about this in Korea that, you know, all the beauty contestants have the same face because they all go to the same plastic surgeons and they all get the same modifications and they're trying to fit into this very particular model of what a beautiful face looks like and they all want to have it. Mm-hmm. And so they do and they look like clones, you know? And, yeah, my, 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 yeah, my wife is actually, uh, like I wanted to s- stay with this uh, for a moment. My, my wife actually is Korean and um, I mean, plastic surgery is like so absolute, you know, it's so common, right? It's like, you know, this is like a graduation gift that you get, no. right? Um, uh, uh, among other things, I remember like one time watching this like Korean show and then I see like all these like women that look absolutely the same. And then these like, these like, like fat, sloppy ass looking guys that are like, why, why do these guys get to look sloppy? And they're the presenters and these women have to have to look this way. Um, and, and yeah, like, like, but, but even like staying with some of the more kind of like, you know, like e- even like the, the skin deep beauty, one thing that's often surprising to me is how often these like conventional images of beauty are at odds with the reality of, of what people in fact find attractive. Like when I think, for example, of, of supermodels that are, you know, uh, extremely skinny, um, oftentimes like, like skinny fat even, and, uh, that doesn't cohere with like what is known biologically in terms of like male attraction, right? I mean, you know, there's the classical, you know, hourglass figure, there's a certain kind of, you know, waist hip ratio that is universally preferable, right? You know, uh, among pretty much all cultures. And to the extent that it varies, it varies, you know, like, you know, I guess to the extent that sexual selection can play a role in, you know, some extreme situations. Okay, maybe, but generally speaking, it's more or less the same. But like, when I see supermodels, like, I just know, that this is generally not what men want, right? And why why is this like weird, arbitrary, like who made this like odd, arbitrary decision that this is going to be the image that women need to like look up to? Or, you know, conversely, right? Uh, we're going to talk about like weightlifting and stuff. Um, like these like, like 
disgusting, like extremely muscle bound guys. Like I've often, like, I've often found it uh, ideal to like, like, what about being like very like wiry and aesthetic and strong, right. As opposed to, cause sometimes I'm five, eight. Right. So when I see like, okay, what does, what does like a 160 pound bodybuilder looks like? And I'm like, I never want to look like that, right? Being that height, like being that weight. And there's like, you know, certain things you have to avoid. Like you have to like, you know, make sure that you're not eating, you know, uh, that much. You have to like change your workout routine so that you're not really gaining that much muscle. Um, but like all, all these images just strike me as extremely arbitrary. And in your conversation with Dan, you mentioned that there's this uh, thing that's happening now where uh, girls are increasingly looking to like get plastic surgery, like it's no big deal. Um, you see this, for example, like in, in your students and it, like a lot of it is couched in this like very faux, like feminist language. Like I remember one time, like my wife, like saw something that like, I guess fucking annoyed her years ago. So she posted on Facebook about like plastic surgery in Korea and some, some woman just like, you know, went on her post and was like, Oh, but they should they should be allowed to do that if they want, right? It's no problem if they do it. Want right, 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 right. And they, they worth do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As if like this is some sort of like you know, it's like this like faux feminism that has absolutely nothing to do with reality. Has nothing yeah. absolutely to do with any kind of empowerment, right? It it, it all goes and, and it's you know. So anyway, um, and and, and also like it seems like the the people that are slightly older, like you know the millennials and above, uh they're kind of going along with it because they're scared, right? Like they're scared to push back against it. They're scared to push back against some of these like faux, I say feminist and scare codes because it's not actually feminism, these kinds of narratives. And they're, it's, it's kind of like, like imagine like, you know, millennials that are like 35, they have kids and they're essentially allowing this like younger generation, their own kids to more or less just go completely wild, right? Believe what they want to believe and say, it's okay. It's okay. Partly because, you know, maybe, maybe they grew up with some of these kinds of dysfunctions as well, right? In some ways, but uh, I mean, it's an interesting kind of dynamic to see happening. Yeah, it, it really is. And I, I think that it, it's got nothing to do with, with feminism. And here I'm going to, you know, get into the contested terrain where uh, people like Margaret Atwood um, and uh, J.P. Rollins have been strung up for not being feminist enough for some people who want to define the term in their own way. So let me just begin by saying that feminism is a great big term like an umbrella and there are many people underneath it who totally disagree with each other about everything so let's just start there mm -hmm. so so when when i say feminism what i mean is recognizing the full humanity of women and girls and their human potential and that means their intelligence and their talent and their capacity to contribute to the world and none of that has got to do with appearance zero mm -hmm. Um, and when and, and when I see people defining feminism as like you know slut walk, uh, you know it's my it's my right to walk down the, the the street wearing no top at all and the shortest mini skirt that I can find and stripper heels and don't sexualize my body, you know. And I'm like, <sighs> women have always been sexual objects, mm -hmm. and. And, and women have always been kind of reduced to their appearance and their reproductive function. That's not going anywhere. We don't mm -hmm. need to lift that up and protect it. Like that's just going to be always there. And so saying that feminism is focusing on your, 
on your sexual attractiveness and this plastic surgery and, and your ability to kind of go out and, and, and basically look like a sex object as wearing as little clothing as possible strikes me as actually the opposite because you're voluntarily reducing yourself to, to a slab of meat. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you go out like that, nobody is thinking about the fact that you might have a brain. No one is thinking about the fact that you might have any skills or anything intelligent to say because you've voluntarily reduced yourself to the sum of your sexual parts. And that's what you're kind of displaying as much of as possible. So that sort of fills fills the consciousness and focus of anyone who's looking at you because look, is that a nipple hanging out? I mm-hmm. mean, you know, can we see the color of your underwear? Oh my goodness. Like you're, you're forcing people to focus on that because that's what you're, you're kind of loudly displaying. And that's not liberation. Mm-hmm. I mean, back in the day when we were talking about ancient history, yeah, slave girls were sold naked. Yes, they were. So that you could see right there the sum of the sexual parts that you were getting. It's incredibly demeaning. Women who had rank and respect wore clothes. Mm-hmm. Because they had a status that was more than just, you know, your, your, your sex appeal. You had a position in society. You had responsibilities. And yes, they were nowhere near the, the range of potentials that is now available to women in some parts of the world. But when I see liberation as just focusing on, you know, my, my right to kind of stick my, my breasts and my nipples in your face... Uh, I, I think that there's something serious that's been lost there and that you're actually just reproducing the, the, the same repression that women have been subject to all the time, which is that people just see them as sex objects and reproductive machines. And there's been such a long fight to be seen as human beings with far greater capacities than that. We have those things, but we have mm-hmm. more than that. We'd like that to be recognized once in a while. I mean, Hedy Lamar, who was a, an old Hollywood screen siren, um, she was thought of as the most beautiful woman in the world, you know, in, in, in American Hollywood circles. She was absolutely brilliant. She, you know, technically, she developed a technology, this, I was reading this this past week, that's responsible for the development of Wi-Fi. But she was going through her entire life being reduced to a pretty face that sold movies and no one recognized or, or praised the fact that she had so much going on between her ears. And so when I think about feminism, I think about recognizing women's full capacities and potential and ability to contribute. And I think that encouraging them to do that, encouraging women and girls to cultivate those, those abilities, because your physical attractiveness has got an end date and it's not a very long one. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got a shelf life. So if you're going to spend all your time worried about lash extensions and nails and like wardrobe, you're going to spend a large portion of your life feeling valueless yeah. when that shelf life kind of diminishes mm-hmm. and no one wants to see you flash your tits in their face anymore. Yeah. You know, then what? What have you got then? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I I definitely agree with your conception of uh, of feminism, and obviously, with like what's the most sub- substantive. Uh, to push back just uh, slightly, uh, though, uh, I I will say that there's definitely still a strain. I'm not sure if you notice this. Um, you know, maybe uh, men in the comp in the company of women, they they well, they definitely do behave differently. Like when I'm hanging out with my neighbors and they're like all guys, if like one of their wives comes out, my wife comes out, like suddenly if they're misbehaving, they're like. You know, like everything goes silent. 
<laughs> like they don't want to act out. And that's the thing, like people really underrate, right? How much, you know, women have had like a domesticating effect on, on men. But anyway, uh, uh, there's definitely this like undercurrent um, in, in lots of men. I think, in fact, this is very normal that, um, you know, they, they, they still have like so many kind of like sexual hangups uh, about their partners. Uh, like, like I, I agree that stuff like, you know, a slut walk is like very silly, but I view that as an overcorrection in the same way that we have so many other like overcorrections in liberal culture, right? We have like political correctness. We have all sorts of stuff that is just this hyper overcorrection. And what it's overcorrecting for is the fact that men have these hangups. Like every once in a while, if I want to be entertained, like I, I check out like, you know, the, the relationship subreddit, or I, I see what people are saying on, on like the, the sex subreddit, like, let me see what these fuckheads are up to. And like, you, you wouldn't believe how many posts there are like, oh, there's this girl that I, I wanted to marry, but like, she just told me that she had a threesome with two guys before we met it. I can't fucking marry. Like a lot of people still you know, still think that way. Right. And, uh, you know, lots of people can't get like men can't get over it in terms of like, you know, their own selves. And there's, you know, there's also this like uh, shame that, that, that women feel as well. So I definitely understand the, the overcorrection, but we also have to recognize that in fact, it is an overcorrection, right? We don't want the pendulum to swing all the way in the other direction because that, you know, an overcorrection by definition is not a correction. It creates its own problems as it goes along. Exactly. Um, all right. Um, so we're still, it's actually been 90 minutes. It's hard <laughs> to believe. Uh, and we, we still have two songs on the first album to get through before we even get to anything else. So deadlifts deadlifts and deadlifts and we uh, we also we also had t.s Eliot. honestly i'm not sure if this is going to happen uh maybe uh, maybe we'd have to like do a standalone thing on it but anyway um so uh you have this other song they say it's similar to to traces of you in the sense that there's also this kind of like you know uh cole porter quality there's a there's a ton of cleverness and uh when dan was talking about the song uh, in your interview with him um uh, he said something like like the also, like b before you even like read the lyrics, if you simply know that the narrator is not uh, uh, is not talking about being in love, she's talking about other people discussing her appearance as she's in love, her behaviors when she's in love. Like that's also a, a clever, right? Uh, perhaps even like you know somewhat counterintuitive in to the art. Um, and there, there's this, uh, uh, like my, my, my favorite part of the song is near the end where, uh, uh, the narrator says, had my neighbor's child sitting on my knee, she was asking about that man and me. I said, he's just a friend, but then she called my bluff. She said, do you mean that man you love? Right. And, and, um, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like, you know, it's playing off of this fact that sometimes kids are very perceptive, but also just artistically, you keep trying to avoid using the word love in the song. Yeah. And finally it comes out. Right. But it's coming through the mouth of this child. Right. And it's so kind of like, you know, like matter of fact, and it's there. It's like, oh, do you mean that man that you love? Kind of like casual, like, well, yeah, of course, of yeah. course you love him. This was never a question. Right. Um, and, and the only one that's questioning it, the only one that's trying to put up fronts is, is the narrator, right? As a singer. Right. So, I mean, v v very clever stuff you got going on. Um, 
So, okay, uh, last uh, song. Uh, I, I think it's uh, maybe my favorite, Saying Goodbye. Uh, it, 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 it does this thing where I, 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 I've heard songs before where like, you know, pe people are singing about death or perhaps fearing death or like sadness related to like, you know, somebody's passing. And uh, in this song, like you seem to be like tapping into that a little bit. Uh, but very quickly, it you know it it enters back into into the love tradition. Right when I said earlier that you know in the macro you're dealing with love, but you're constantly refracting it in certain ways. You're turning away from it in certain ways. You're letting it in in other ways. And there's a lot of kind of you know uh, give and take. Um, and and you have the same thing here, right? Like you, uh, um, uh, like it starts for example with. When my time to go comes, I'll miss the rain that falls on the earth and greens it again. I'll miss the wellspring that makes everything new, but I don't know how to say goodbye to you, right? And um, I mean, uh, th 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 this is this is well written because, right? Well, besides like the individual lines, which which are also clever, the images uh, of the rain and the greeting of the earth are memorable, right? They, they, they stick with you, right? This is even when I forget how the song sounds like or whatever, uh, I, I still have those images stick in my head. Um, it, it, it does like reintroduce love. Like you're thinking, okay, is this going to be a song about something completely different? But in a way that's completely unexpected, you bring, you know, uh, love back into it. Um, which is also very well done and, and clever. Um, well, I, I'm so I'm done with this album. I'm not sure if you want to talk about this song or maybe something else on it or or uh, uh, anything uh, related related to that before we move on. Yeah, no, just that 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 song is one of my favorites that I've ever written. Um, and it, it it started when I was actually running. Uh, I was I was out for a run, and and that was when these lyrics uh, started coming because the beauty of the natural world is is profound, and it's something that um, that I appreciate every day. And I, I'm lucky enough to live in a place where there's a lot of access to it. Like I, I don't live in a concrete jungle. There's mm -hmm. an orchard across the road. And every time I get into my car, I look down the road and I just see these blue mountains uh, looming on the horizon. And they're, they're close enough to touch. I mean, I, I go out there and I, I touch them very regularly. So um, it, it comes from a, from a profound sense of the beauty of these things. And and the and the feeling of privilege to to be there to witness them and, and to appreciate them, um, and it's there was one 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 minor correction. It's it's I miss the way spring makes everything new. Oh, okay. Um, minor minor detail, yeah. close enough. But yeah, I mean, all, all all these things are beautiful, and yet you know that eventually you'll have to leave them behind, and and intellectually you can accept that, but then there are those things that are harder to accept. And, uh, and so, yeah. yeah, it's, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, but a, a little more than that. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's not only unexpected in the sense that, you know, love uh, seems to come out of nowhere, but, uh, you also don't do this thing. Like, I, I feel like, okay. So if, if someone is clever enough to get past the point of like, you know, uh, doing a purely conventional love song and they bring love into it right through, through this kind of in, um, 
they will probably though fail at the point where they end up doing something like, oh, and our love will endure. Like everything is going to die, but our love will remain. But you explicitly, not only do you not do that, you reject that, right? Um, you, you, you seem to be kind of like saying that, uh, you know, not only will I die, you will die. And in fact, we might not get any kind of closure about this, right? We might not be able to communicate, right? Our fears here, our sadness, we might have to be purely okay with leaving things as they are, right? So uh, like, I feel like you, you have like so many kind of landmines that you could step on and you expertly, you know, navigate around them and you don't step on them because, um, you know, like with any kind of artwork, right? Like you sort of, you know, you kind of oftentimes create your own kind of pitfalls, right? But um, I mean, th this avoids it uh, very, very well. Um, and uh, so I, I guess we, we could talk about uh, the next album. I, ha I had three songs to talk about, but there are also some like, questions uh, leading up to it. So I guess uh, the best way to tackle this is, so you had this album in 2017, you have this next album in 2019. Uh, do you feel across these couple of years that you improved as an artist? And if so, like what does artistic improvement look like to you? What are the value judgments that you're making? How do you know that these are the correct value judgments to take? And also, how do you know that these are, you know, even the right questions to ask before you start, you know, giving these value judgments? Yeah, that's a challenging question because having it should be you're an artifact. Yeah. Yeah, having having perspective on your own work is an inherently hazardous activity, you know, um, because on one hand, you're kind of emotionally connected to it because you invested your energy into it and it's your thing. Uh, but having an objective ability to evaluate where it stands uh, in terms of what is the current, to what extent have you achieved your goals, but to, and to what extent have you achieved the ability to communicate and where does it rank in relationship to other things that you admire and that you're shooting for. So there are a number of ways that one could judge improvement um, as an artist, because it's a big package, right? I'm, I'm working, for example, on my skills as a vocalist. When I started this you know, thing in music, I thought of myself primarily as a songwriter, not a singer at first, I'd only just managed to get the idea into my head that I could write songs and melodies. And, you know, being skillful as a vocalist was very new. And I thought, well, I guess I have to sing because who else is going to sing these songs? If I don't sing them, who's going to deliver them? So I need to work on that. Um, that's an ongoing process. And so have I improved in that way? I think so, yes. How do I know? Well, there are some objective measurements. You can talk about being able to sustain um, sound and the quality of that sound. You can talk about range, you know, all these sorts of things. So I can find objective measurements of improvement in say that subset of being a vocalist. Mm -hmm. But in terms of being um, like a song writer, um, I had a sense with this most recent album that, that there were at least a couple of tracks that brushed the hem of the dream that I have when it comes to music. And that dream is to be able to make music like Chet Baker, that's something that becomes canonical. So something that, that people wanna turn on and listen to again and again, because it creates that mood, because it becomes um, 
a vehicle for their own emotions and experience because it it communicates something about the human condition that they can relate to and that they can invest their own experiences and their emotions into the experience of that music and it becomes personal to them. And we've all got those songs, you know, that that kind of speak to us in those ways and we invest, we wrap them in our own experiences and, and they become part of us in the way that great poetry does as well, right? So I was I was aiming at that Chet Baker feeling. And there were a couple of songs that, you know, you do the best you can to write the song, to 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 to, to sing it, to to write the, the music and the lyrics, and you have an idea in your head of how you want to arrange it, but you still gotta bring it into the studio. And then it's subject to this whole process where other people are involved. And what they bring to that is going to it's going to propel it and it's going to grow in some direction. It may not be the direction you had in mind. It may still be a good direction, but you don't really know what it's going to look like when you take that song and you put it into that studio production process where other musicians hear what you're doing and they bring their own thing to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, either the thing that they bring is, is congruent with, with a, a vision that, that works or it's not. And I've seen examples of both, fortunately more in, in, in the former category than, than the latter. But on this occasion, I, I brought in um, these two songs in particular, and I had a very specific sense of the, of the emotional uh, tone that they needed to have and, and the feel that needed to be communicated to the listener. And to watch that come out in the room and to and to listen to it afterwards literally dozens and dozens and dozens of times in various stages and to feel that yes that that feels exactly the way that it should and um and and then you try so that's that's your subjective judgment right does it feel the way i think it should in my head that's question 1 but question 2 is okay now that we got that where does it stand when i listen to that song in the company of other songs that I admire, you know, can it partake of the same air or is it, you know, still far off? And I, I hope that with those, those couple of tracks, at least that it, that it begins to edge into that particular altitude that, that, that I'm aiming for, whether it does or not ultimately will be decided by the listener, you know, that there are some things that you can't ultimately know, uh, you can do the best you can and shoot at that mark, but whether you've landed there will be decided by your audience. Uh, like, does that make you feel like kind of crazy? Like the, the fact that you have to give up a significant amount of control to like someone else's points of views and, and, and visions, because I, I feel like very lucky that, you know, of all the kind of uh, art art forms I could have stumbled into, like for me, it's writing, which is like so solitary, right? Um, you know, I, I could just like avoid people and things and just do whatever I want to do. Like, like, do, like, do you, like, do you have instances of like failures in the sense that people are just doing something that you, that you want nothing to do with or what? Uh, I mean, <sighs> So I have to understand, is your question about the other people that contribute to the making of the art or is it about the audience after the fact? Because those are two different things. Well, yeah, the, the, the people that are creating it with you, like, do you feel like they're either stepping on your toes sometimes or like they're not getting it or, or, or like something like that? All of those things can happen. So yeah. um, 
I mean, finding finding a good producer to work with is kind of the, the single most important thing because that that producer is like the team leader, you know, like I I take my songs to a producer and I say, this is my project. This is what I want to make. And then it's his job to actually construct the sound files that are supposed to approximate that vision and then to pick the session musicians that he thinks are going to be able to bring that feel um, to the project. So if you pick the wrong producer, like if, if I was trying to make a jazz album and I went to a, an amazing producer who did all kinds of country uh, albums, that would be a stupid thing to do because mm-hmm. the vibe, the, the palette of tools that he's working with are in a particular genre and it's not mine. So if I'm saying here, take your tools that are super specialized for a country sound and make a totally different thing, it's probably not going to work, you know? Mm-hmm. So you have to find someone who, understands and likes to work in that palette of colors, if you like, um, and then has that sensibility. And then if they do, then 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 they will draw on their own network of musicians to say, ah, you know, I know five horn players, but the one we want for this project is this guy, because they understand the sound you're going for and they're able to make those decisions. So I've been fortunate um, to have found such a guy uh, he he did the um, Hot Damn Romance album. He produced it, and he's producing this this one that's coming out now. But he picked an absolutely brilliant piano player by the name of um, Stephen Gardner and a wonderful drummer uh, called Charlie Ringus. And these two guys were incredibly professional, incredibly skillful, and really good at coming out with the jazz sound. And they were also totally dedicated to getting the sound that we wanted. They didn't bring their own kind of, you know, ego or preconceptions in there and say, well, I'm just going to play this drum track and it's brilliant. What do you mean you don't like it? You know, this is my brilliant drum track. Well, it might be, but it's not the song that we're looking mm-hmm. for. So all kinds of things can go wrong. People can have different styles. They can have enormous egos, um, you know, all kinds of things. But we were really lucky on this occasion that the, the producer was was exactly the man and he picked some people who were very skillful and really good at bringing the best so watching these songs literally like blossom like flowers in front of me in the studio in real time was an almost magical experience yeah and that's got everything to do with um with the people who i was privileged to work with so fortunate yeah Yeah, i'm not i'm not sure how how rare that is but um uh, uh, I mean, I'm glad that it worked out that way. There's this uh, song in Hot Damn Romance that I'm not sure if you'd agree with my assessment, but I think by far the best uh, song on that album is uh, Water, right? And I'm just pulling up the lyrics. So uh, Water um, is, is the song. I mean, like, first of all, do, do you agree that it's it's the best uh, song on the album or or what? I I really like that song. Um I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to ask someone who writes songs, like, what's your favorite one? Because it's like, well, they're all my children, right? But but that song stands out as very different from all the others. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a beautiful surprise uh, to, to hear how it how it came out. But it's certainly one of my favorites to sing uh, mm-hmm. and, 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 and the feel of it emotionally. So, yeah, I'm very fond of it. So I have the lyrics here, and I'm just going to read. It's not too long, right? So I'm going to read all the lyrics and the reason why I'm doing this is um, I feel like uh, some casual listeners, let's call them normies, might say, well, 
Ava Schubert has a ton of um, uh, cliches here. And I'm, I, and I'm wondering how you would respond to some of those charges. And I think you'd be able to pick up on, on some of the lines that I'm talking about. Uh, not, not that I necessarily agree with that argument, but I, I, I want to see without me uh, like giving you my own input, like how, how would you, uh, I don't want to say defend yourself, right? It sounds very adversarial, but you know, let's say that artists are competitive. How would you defend yourself in this situation? So um, water. I need your lips like water. I crave your touch like bread. And every day I hunger, no matter how much I've been fed. And I don't like to admit it because I've been proud to walk alone, but life's another color than anything I've ever known. Here we stand in clouds of stardust with all the things we can't explain, but you, make me believe in miracles again. I've heard rumors on the water, all the wrecks with love to blame. Maybe what's between us should have another name. I need your lips like water. I crave your touch like bread. And every day I hunger, no matter how much I've been fed. I like that you have this like dreamy look on your face as I read the lyrics. <laughs> well it, it like it puts me into a certain like mental state which is the one it came out of right um so i think that that bread and water are uh, often used as images so you could you could accuse those of being cliche uh in in, in the sense that you know i mean neruda has done it lots of other people have done it um I even played with it on a previous song called Bread and Chocolate. I was talking about, you know, things things that you want, things that you need uh, nutritionally uh, as metaphors for love. But um, I think that this song doesn't just stick with one image and kind of unpack it in five different ways. Water runs through it. And so you've got, you know, the water that you that you drink, but you've also got the water of the ocean and shipwrecks. And then you have the idea of, of clouds of stardust and, and the sort of space. Um, and so while while bread and water you've heard before, you haven't necessarily heard it as part of this larger, almost triptych of, mm -hmm. of images that are being used here to explain uh, what's what's going on. So that would be my defense. And I will say that the Clouds of Stardust bit is my favorite bit poetically, but that's just a personal subjective thing. Yeah, that, that's the next thing that I want to um, uh, focus. So like, here we stand in clouds of stardust with all the things we can't explain, but you make me believe in miracles again. Now, um, uh, I, I think some people like would, would make the argument that, but you make me believe in miracles again, as just kind of like, you know, uh, a generic kind of like trope thing that you find in, in all sorts of love songs. But uh, the, um, well, actually like what, what would, uh, before I give my argument as to why it's not a, a cliche, what would your argument be? I think that there's a tendency to re to reduce love to materialistic functions, and I've seen writing on this to talk about well, love is just a you know a cocktail of hormones that are released in the brain, and it's sort of a a series of physiological inputs and outputs and whatever. And so, if 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 the external conditions are right and you get the right combination of dopamine and serotonin and blah blah blah, then you're going to experience this state that we call love. But it's really just a product of biochemistry, 
you know, and and you could probably make it in the lab. Uh, if, 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 if we studied a little more, we could probably get the right cocktail and just reproduce that feeling mm-hmm. in someone's brain. Um, and, and so that stanza is basically saying, well, it's true that, that science gives us this conceit that we can reduce everything to explicable material functions. And that's kind of the conceit of that way of knowing. And I have no quarrel with science. I'm not one of these woo-woo people who thinks that, you know, uh, Western science is, is a crock and, and we should get rid of it and go with our gut. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, it's very important. But there's, there's a tendency to want to be able to reduce everything to these physical functions. And what I'm saying is that there are some things that are more than the sum of their physical parts. There are some things that can't necessarily be reduced to the, to the right number of hormones and atoms. And there's a magic, if you like, that that happens that that supersedes the sum of the physical mm-hmm. parts. And that's what I mean by by miracles. It's it's those things that we can't explain. We can explain lots of things, and and we can analyze things, but but there are some things that are beyond our grasp and that have this quality of magic because we even if even if we can count all the physical parts they don't quite account for that experience and i think that love is one of those things and that's yeah. what i'm trying to say here yeah uh, love and uh, negative capability um and, and actually th- that would have been my argument as well uh, the way that i would phrase it is uh, unlike most songs that would invoke, like, you make me believe in miracles again, what you're saying here is literal, literally, you make me believe in miracles again, literally, right? And oftentimes when you have, cli- like, oftentimes when you have cliches, uh, people tend to forget, like, what's underneath some of these words, like, so- some cliches and some idioms, like, when you really think about them, they're they're often, like, really clever or, like, like something, like, crazy as a bed bug. I just find that so, you know, so so funny. And there's, there's a ton of stuff like that. But uh, here, the transition into the literalness, like, is what makes it work. Um, and uh, it also means this next stanza is wonderful. I've heard rumors on the water all the wrecks with love to blame. Maybe what's between us should have another name. Again, that kind of like refraction, right? Turning away slightly uh, from love. Um, but yeah, I definitely think this is the best song uh, uh, on the album. And, it, and it's one of my favorite uh, songs from you. Uh, for the singing, the musical uh, background, and you know, all the tons and tons of like inversions of like line to line inversions, inversions of, of tropes. Um, anyway, look, it, it's, it's been two hours, which was our, a lot, a lot of time, but I got to ask you, like, do you really have to like fucking go? Like, what do you got to do? You're going to go make money. Is that what you got to do? You got to go work? No, I've got to go make dinner. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the, the, the way that I work around that is like on days when I'm recording, uh, my wife and I have a fend for self, right? So I just had like a, a bottle of kefir and that's it. That's dinner, right? A lot, a lot of people say like, oh man, how are you supposed to lose weight? Wake up have a fucking glass of juice, have a protein bar, eat 12 hours later, right? That, that's yeah, the yeah, easiest yeah. way. Well, um, I'll, I'll tell you what, I think it would be a terrible thing if we had this conversation and didn't talk about deadlifting. Yeah. So we're, it's, it's 4.57 over here. So I'm going to say we've got 17 minutes to cover physical training. Go. Okay. So, um, yeah, so you're, you're uh, uh, well, 
maybe you can't tell so easily around from the video that you're into fitness. If you decide to ever bless the audience and flex your upper back, they would change their minds. But you are very into fitness, right? You, you hike a lot. Uh, when I go on vacations, like one of the main things is like almost every vacation that I take now is like, there's like a huge either hiking component or walking component. When I went to Amsterdam, it was specifically, let's find a place where we could just walk for hours, right? Don't have to take public transit. Um, uh, Montreal, I love Montreal because it's so, it's so walkable, right? Hours and hours. So, um, like when did you get into fitness? Like, and what specifically made it stick, you know, as, as you got older? Cause I feel like a lot of people that are sort of into fitness vaguely, let's say, uh, they sort of fall out, fall out of it pretty fast. Yeah. Um, so I was fortunate enough to have that early physical discipline of classical ballet pretty much from the age of three until the age of 12. Uh, and I, and that was the first time that I had that feeling of like sitting on a bench after a workout and having your muscles involuntarily shake. You know, like mm -hmm. I remember the, the, the legs shaking and I was like, what's going on? And, and it's because that's what happens when you, you know, you use your muscles, at, at, up. Um, it feels good, right? It does feel good. Yeah. And so being exposed to that, uh, as kind of a regular part of my weekly routine was a great gift. So we had to quit when I was 12 because it was expensive and there were more and more children happening in the family. So there was less money to go around. And, um, you know, puberty happened like, you know, the next year. And I, I began to be really concerned. I was like, oh, my goodness, there's all kinds of things happening in strange ways, soft body parts moving around. Um, and I began to be concerned about losing uh, fitness. So between 13 and 14, I joined a gym which was easy to do because I looked several years older than I was. I could easily pass for 15, 16. So I uh, started that and that became kind of a benchmark. Um, but I, I would read men's muscle magazines mm -hmm. for lifting workouts because I very quickly discovered, I tried one or two female ones and they were like, oh, you know, you can get a Campbell's yeah. soup can yeah, and do yeah, like yeah. bicep curls. I was like, are you kidding me? So you, you'd get like men's health and fitness or something and they'd be like, okay, delts. This mm -hmm. is how you do delts. And um, so, you know, this was like me, teenage Eva is like 14, 15, reading the guy's muscle mags and taking those workouts in and, and doing them. Um, but what I discovered as I kind of went along with it was, I mean, at the very beginning when I was at, when I was at uh, adolescent, you're, you're worried about your body changing and you're worried about getting soft and all this. But, but as I got on, I, it became as much of an internal thing as an external one. And what I mean by that is physical fitness, yes, it's, 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 a, it's keeping your body healthy. And yes, there's an aesthetic component, of course, which is great for confidence and everything else. But it's also a daily training in discipline. Mm -hmm. And that's a character trait. Yeah. And that's something that is highly transferable because training for me happens five days a week. And it happens whether I feel like it or not, right? And, and I always say to people when they ask me, well, how do you stick with it? I'm like, well, first of all, never ask yourself, do I feel like training today? It's the wrong question. Training is scheduled. You get out of bed, you put on your training clothes, and you train. And it's a, it's a checklist item, mm -hmm. like brushing your teeth or anything else. How you feel about it doesn't matter. But there are definitely days when you don't feel like it. And so doing it anyway teaches you things that you would otherwise not know. Mm -hmm. It teaches you that actually you usually have the capacity, even when the, the voice of weakness in your brain is telling you that today is a good day to be, you know, take an off day and rest and take it easy. No, it's not. 
Mm-hmm. Today is not the day to give in to the voice of weakness. Do, 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 do you notice that? And if in fact you do take a day off, the day after you like, it's like, oh, maybe this day as well, right? It starts this kind of you know chain Slide. reaction, right? Um, yeah, and, and uh, so like w- w- when I was young, uh, I you know I was uh, I was always overweight as a kid. By the time I was a teenager, I was morbidly obese. Although ironically, I was still kind of uh, active. Like I remember when I was a uh, thirteen, I had this. Uh, I guess it's a fairly common knee condition in kids uh, who are active, where their quads uh, actually grow faster than their bones. So I ha- I still have this thing. You see my knee where it's kind of like jutting out. Right, it was very painful for about a week. Then it just sort of goes away. Pretty common, but by the time I uh, I became um, like 19 years old, I stepped in the scale. I was shocked to find that here I was. Like I I, I probably wasn't even five eight at that point. I was probably like five seven at that point, and I was like 220 pounds. And I was like, oh fuck, like this is unbelievable. How did this happen? And I was in so much body pain. Right, like I uh, I couldn't I, I I couldn't walk for more than a few minutes without back pain. I couldn't sit. I was in college. And I remember just like, just like dreaming of like going home so I could just lie down and then like being on the train, standing like around all these people thinking like, fuck, like, I wish I could get a seat. I just can't stand this hurt so much. And I, I, I was looking up like, okay, what am I supposed to do? Like the first thing was like, how am I supposed to deal with this back pain? Right. Cause one thing I, I learned very early on is that physical therapists are fucking worthless. Like mm-hmm. physical therapy is like stone age level of knowledge. Same thing with like nutrition, nutrition and physical therapy. So many people don't know, uh, like, like even if you're like trained in it, like there, there's just so much, you know, misinformation. And a lot of it is just trial and error. Like if you have injuries, if you have problems, you have to ton, you have to try a ton of different things before you find what actually works for you. But I also strongly believe that, you know, for any kind of like physical ailment like, like that, that anybody might have, there definitely is some sort of combination of movements, whether it's weights, whether it's unweighted that you could do to bring you out of pain. I know because I had everything from back pain to, if you want to think of tendonitis, imagine triceps tendonitis, nobody gets that shit. Right. Um, and like, how do you, how do you like work? Like, like knee pain. I, I remember at some point, this is even after deadlifting, I had so much knee pain. If I were to like run more than like one minute and I was, it, it was just, it was so psychologically damaging in the sense that like, I would constantly think like, well, fuck, what if I'm walking on the street and for whatever reason, I just have to run. Am I literally unable to do so? I, I went to like so many physical therapists. I tried so many different things. Um, and uh, I, my gym actually is in the, um, is in the, uh, the, that open door behind me. And uh, af- after I moved into this house and I built it, I was like, all right, uh, the one thing I haven't tried for my knees, let me try it. Front squats, because back squats didn't work. Thousands of bodyweight squats didn't work miles and miles of walking didn't work. Uh, and I wasn't expecting this to work, but first front squat that I did, not only was there no pain, I had no pain the next day. And I figured out, oh shit, there's something specific about this exercise that whatever's going on with my knees, this corrects it. And you know, at this point, I don't have any problems like that anymore. But that deadlifting, like when I discovered it, um, I, I was reading this book by uh, Pavel Tutelini, right? He's this like Russian trainer who introduced kettlebells and deadlifting, I think, to yes. Americans. And he has this like, you know, USSR, like I'm a Soviet trainer shtick, right? And you'd think like, oh, you know, this must be like shit information, but he had great information. But that book, Power to the People, is still one of the best physical training books on the planet. Even if it's written in, in a way that's kind of like, you know, kitschy or whatever, it's really good. And I, I remember like within the first few months of doing it, 
like my back pain, not, not only did my pain go away within a year, I was walking down the street and just like thinking literally, holy shit, I can't imagine anyone feeling stronger and healthier than I feel right now. And compared to what things were for me two years ago, like it was just unbelievable. So, I mean, since that point, uh, you know, like right now I have like very specific routines. Whenever I wake up, first thing I do, I take like a, I take a walk around a, a pond. It's a, it's a three mile walk. I take like another, uh, uh, I try to walk up to like 10 miles a day. Um, and I do that like before lifting weights, you know, uh, uh, deadlifts, um, uh, front squats, uh, Turkish getups. I love Turkish getups. Like I, I, I still get uh, times when I feel kind of lazy, but even like days when I'm lazy, since, since I, since I have body pain that will return if I don't do various yeah. stretches and, and different things. Uh, I, I don't ever feel like I'm slacking off if I decide not to do weights, but if I really want to do weights and I feel like just too, too out of it. You could do like a like a thirty minute like um, Turkish getup routine, where like like I mean think about it. First of all, with that motion, you're getting um, getting car if you're doing thirty minutes, you're getting some kind of cardio, but it's also very meditative and yoga like because it's the same like movement back and forth. Like you're doing a kind of balancing act. Uh, you're working on your core in ways that you don't, like, even if you lift weights, like uh, a Turkish get a pitcher core in, in angles that you, you simply will never get, right? Doing something like, even like a front squat, right? Um, or, or deadlift. Um, uh, anyway, I'm not sure if you have anything to, to say about that or, or what, or like, or like specifically also like have like, have you dealt with injuries? Like, like what are your experience with, with things like that? Yeah, I was actually thinking of an exact parallel to that because shortly after I started my career in the gym, around 13 or 14, I discovered this pain that uh, was happening to me and it wasn't the good kind of pain. You know, yeah. I, I divide pain quite distinctly between good pain and bad pain. And uh, good pain is constructive and voluntary and bad pain is destructive and involuntary. So it was bad pain um, and it was basically shooting through my my right glute. Uh-huh. Um and it would no, happen I've got like that, yeah. the day after yeah. a workout. And I was like, what's going on? And then it sometimes happened on my left glute, although that, that took a while for that to happen. And this pain would be kind of recurrent on a semi-regular basis. And it would range in, in intensity from like a two, where it's kind of like a dull ache, to there was one episode I had where it was at a 10, where it was spasming so badly that I could not uh, walk on that mm-hmm. occasion. And that was terrifying. So this started when I was about 14 and it, it persisted into my late 20s. So a oh, long shit. time. Yeah. yeah. And it was just one of those things that, you know, I was like, and I saw doctors and I saw physiotherapists and I saw massage And they can't say shit. They don't, they don't know shit. They don't nothing, know anything. Nothing. There was, there was lots of prodding, you know, prodding yeah. of that, of that area. Thanks. Thanks for that. But it didn't really do anything. So, um, then uh, I, I met someone who was really into martial arts and had a long history of injuries and things himself that he'd kind of gotten over. And he said, there's definitely an answer to this. We mm-hmm. need to see a new doctor, just, you know, whatever. And he kind of pushed me to take it seriously because I'd sort of given up and thought, well, you know, this is just a feature of my life now and I have to work around it. Um, and I saw this doctor and uh, this doctor was like, oh, you're just one of the 20% of the population that has your sciatic nerve bisecting your glute. Mm-hmm. So when your glutes get tight, it just applies pressure on that sciatic nerve, which is really quite painful. Mm-hmm. Answer, stretch your glutes like this. 
And since I've been doing that stretch, I have never had an episode again. Yeah. But that yeah. was something that dogged my life for like 15 years. Yeah, yeah. That that, that <laughs> multi-year injury, like well, for me, like I, I'm lucky, like my knees were only four years, but knees are also very kind of significant in that sense, right? Um, and just like literally trying like literally like hundreds, hundreds of hours of all sorts of things that people prescribe, things you and, and also like when you find stuff on the internet, like I'm sure now in retrospect, when you look back to some of those like muscle mags they used to read, also a whole lot of bullshit, isn't there? A lot of shit. A lot of shit that you know but you know like it, it's it, it's gonna take i feel like another century for nutrition and physical therapy to be f- fully resolved but i i strongly believe that there's always a way out of like even like the worst kind of uh, situation like this um i i i i have books by a Stu mcgill you ever heard of this name yes i yeah exactly so yeah he, and he's helped so many people yeah. out of lifelong crippling back pain He's an expert. I mean, yeah. he's devoted his entire life as a medical doctor to the human back and how it works. He's amazing. Uh-huh. So anyone yeah. who's listening to this who has any kind of back trouble should definitely read Stuart McGill. Yeah, the, 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 the best, the best, like most uh, comprehensive book here uh, is a Back Mechanic by Stu McGill. Yes. And I, 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 you know, ever since I discovered those exercises, he calls it the Big Three. Um, I, you know, I, I do them after my walk. It's, a, it's the first thing I do when I, when I get back. Uh, before I do sit down to record something like this, I do the big three and it cements your back in a way where, um, you don't get, you know, uh, the pains from sitting like you, you, it's not, it's not that you don't get it period. If you sit for like 10 hours without moving, yes, you're going to come back, but it gives you, it expands that window of being pain-free. And like, for example, like I, I know enough about myself that now after we finish talking, I'm going to go on like an hour walk, uh, you know, around the pond or whatever. And that, you know, a- any, I don't have any discomfort now, but that's going to prevent any discomfort from popping up tomorrow because tomorrow, tomorrow is a weight day. Um, yes. uh, yeah. So, so, and, and also like the, the way that I think of, of, of things like stretching and walking is those are the things that fuel the stuff that I really love to do was the, which is the weightlifting, right? Yeah. If you it, like, but you have, you have to do the stretching, you have to do that kind of like prehab, rehab, whatever, in order for you to smoothly do those other things. Right. Um, yeah. so, and it, it, it's this kind of uh, give and take, but, um, uh, anyway, like w- one one last thing, uh, I, I don't have it uh, here, but I showed this before. Like I, uh, I, 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 I'm a big supplement freak. Uh, I have like a, a metal tin like this that I fill twice a day with pills. It's literally like this tall, right? Because and it's still like flowing out. That's kind of like a crazier thing compared to like even people into supplements. But like, are you a supplement freak, or is or is that like only me? Because I haven't met many supplement freaks except for the ones that I turn on to supplements. I have I have experimented with various things in the past. I discovered that I was allergic to some kind of binding or filling ingredients oh, that are in a lot yeah. of vitamins. So then I didn't take as many of mm-hmm. them. But I mean, there there are things that I need to take. I need to supplement my diet with iron. There's the mm-hmm. barbell kind and there's the pill kind, but I need mm-hmm. both of them. But but one of the things I, I love about deadlifting, because I'm going to go there because I love it, um, is that it keeps you honest. Yeah. So when we're talking about exercise and like the long term and people talk about keeping fit, but how when you say keeping fit, what exactly is it you're keeping? Because unless you've got an objective measurement of some some fitness thing that you can do, you don't know if you've kept it or not. And we're really great at lying to ourselves. Right. Like you, you, you go for a run and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm as fast as I ever was. No, you're probably not. But unless you were keeping track of your times for the 5K or the 10K, You've got no way of judging whether 
what you're doing tomorrow is better, worse, or wherever relative to what you did four years ago, for example. And the thing about deadlifting is that it's it's such a whole body movement. And so it's very satisfying, mm-hmm. but it also keeps you really honest. Like you can't fudge it. Either you get that weight off the ground yeah. or you don't. Yeah. And and it's a, it's a big number, you know? So it requires complete focus. Like there are people mm-hmm. who can do bicep, you know, curls like this and they're kind of, you know, off thinking about something else. But if you try and do that with a deadlift, you're going to, I mean, you're going to cause yeah. some serious damage to yourself. Yeah. You can't. It demands total focus. And you're going to know if you got that off the ground or not. And you're going to know if you made some mistakes in your form while you did it. And so I think that it, it really, it keeps you honest um, in terms of where you're at and where you need to go. And the thing is, I, a lot of people just, when, when you say weightlifting, they think of those like steroid monkeys, mm-hmm. you know, guys that are like roided out and their veins are popping out everywhere. And, and mm-hmm. they're like, and, you know, and women are worse for that. They're like, oh, weightlifting will make me look like that. Or, or, or I remember one woman telling me, like, it's going to make me sweat. It's going to make me sweat. Oh, my God. Okay. What I say to people is, if you, if you, if you weren't sweating, you didn't have a good time. Okay? Yeah. Anything good in life, anything good in life involves yeah. sweating. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. So embrace it. It's a good sign. If you got a problem with breaking a sweat, you got a problem with living, honey. I mean, that, yeah. that, that's... I have no time for that. So, you know, yes, sweat and sometimes blood and sometimes tears. I mean, all all of these are type one, type two and type three fun. You just have to kind of go with it. Um, But a a good, honest sweat is an important thing. And it's actually something that comes up in a song on the next album, but we'll talk about that one later. Yeah. uh, One quick last question about deadlifting. So, I mean, I I was trained by this uh, one woman. She was like like 56 at the time. Uh, powerlifter still setting uh, records at that time. This was a uh, this was a while ago, um, but you know she's like genetically gifted, right? Um, then I looked though at, at people like uh, Pavel Tusolini, and he's like, okay, well he introduced deadlifts. He has you know my uh, kind of like physique in the sense that he's not that tall. He's kind of skinny. He's he never wanted to like to put on a lot of a lot of weight. He just wanted to be strong. But uh, I, I heard this interview that he did with Joe Rogan like a year ago, and he's in his fifties now, and he's like. I don't deadlift anymore. It's just not really good for my body anymore. Like he could do like kettlebell swings, but he can't do deadlifts. And it just made me think like, okay, like, you know, deadlifts have always been sold like by, by some people at least as like, oh, grandma got back pain, you know, put her on a diet of deadlifts. And I, you know, I don't think that's very realistic. And it makes me think like, how long can the average person that doesn't have like true genetic gifts how long can they go with something like a deadlift? And when they have to eventually stop, like, what does that look like? Does that look like, okay, I've been doing it the last few months and it just makes me feel so weathered and worn down? Or does it come in the form of like a catastrophic injury, right? That, that's what I'm thinking now. Because, you know, like I, I'm, uh, I'm going to be 34 uh, at the end of this week. And most people my age, they no longer lift weights. They definitely no longer deadlift. They don't do a lot of shit. And, you know, it's eventually going to be my time too. Uh, do, like, do you ever think about like, in what form is that going to take? Like, when will you have to part with this like favorite activity, you know? <laughs> Because honestly, like, no, it, you know, I, like when I, it happens, like it's gonna, it's gonna be so sad. Like honestly, I am so committed to fitness as a way of life, as as an expression of kind of personal grit and discipline, that I see myself doing it 
in whatever form is possible until I drop dead. Like I would prefer to drop dead under a barbell. Thank you very much. That's how I'd like to go out. So um, if there's something physiological that happens at some point where it's like, no, the deadlift is not working. There are kettlebells. There are dumbbells. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of other things you can be doing. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for goodness sakes, there's footage of her in the gym in the last few years of her life. Was she deadlifting heavy weights? No, but she was in the gym mm-hmm. and she was working on her muscles. And I think that being able to be there at that point in your life has a lot to do with everything you put in up to that point. Cause mm-hmm. don't kid yourself. If you throw in the towel at, you know, 37 and you're like, Oh, well, you know, I've got kids and I've got saddlebags and I got no time for fitness and blah, blah, blah. Okay. That's fine. 20 or 30 years of getting ever more decrepit. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't lose it, it goes away. So you put on the weight, you lose your muscle mass. Then you start having joint pains and all those good things we've already talked about. Are you going to be in the state physically or mentally to be in the gym working out when you're 68? No, probably not. In fact, you might already be dead by then. Or you're probably diabetic. You've probably got a whole range of other issues that were exacerbated by a lack of maintenance, a lack of prevention, a lack of nutrition, all these things. So if it's if it's a lifelong commitment, if it's a lifestyle, it's not about the aesthetic, okay? I mean, everyone's going to get old. Everyone's going to get saggy skin. That's unavoidable. Deal with it. But, but not going quietly and not kind of voluntarily participating in your own decrepitude, that's up to you. Time will continue to pass, but what you put into that time and where you invest your energy is up to you. And there are already a a number, a growing body of studies that show that physical activity helps keep your brain functioning as well. That it, it that, that we like to think still, you know, like Descartes of our minds and bodies as separate units, but they're intimately connected. And so when you're, when you're working on your cardio and when you're working on your weights to whatever capacity you have, uh, you're also doing things that are good for your mind. You're you're helping preserve your body as well as you can. And mm-hmm. that's ultimately going to give you the best odds for being more functional and more able to enjoy a better quality of life for as long as you have the good fortune to be alive. And I think that, you know, throwing in the towel really guarantees a lower quality of life for whatever yeah. amounts of time you have. Yeah. So why, you know, why would you want to do that? I, don't I mean, it, like, if you think about it, like, think of, uh, you know, people in their 80s uh, and older that literally, you know, have lost so many uh, functions in terms of like, you know, raising their arms, like whatever it might be. Um, but if you continue doing those motions, uh, maybe you lose some of them, but generally speaking, you'll be able to keep uh, most of them. I remember seeing this video of this 82 year old man who deadlifted, he's about my height, my weight. He deadlifted uh, 225 pounds. He's like 82 years old. After he did it, granted, he did sort of like slowly collapse and sort of like somersaulted over, then got up. But, you know, you, you could expect, you know, you're getting lightheaded or whatever. But, you know, all those are, are possibilities. And it's not necessarily uh, having to intersect with like any particular genetic gifts. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's it's a mistake to say, it's, it's a cop-out to say, oh, fitness is for the, the lucky ones, the genetically mm-hmm. gifted ones. I say bullshit to that. It's spe- fitness- specifically for the unlucky ones. If you're fucked up, if you've got a bad back, it's specifically for you. Trust me on yeah. this. Yeah. 
I mean, fitness, fitness is, is basically for, for anyone who, who has the ability to, to drive themselves and, and the people that don't, the people that have chosen, and it is a choice, uh, you know, not to do it. Then, then they say, oh, you're so lucky or you're genetically gifted. And I just don't have those genes. It wasn't up to me. I didn't have any agency. That is a denial of reality. Mm -hmm. And if you want to live that way, you will pay the consequences of that. But let's not talk about luck here and genetic gifts. Yes, some people are genetically gifted for sure. But you don't have to be genetically gifted to be fit and, 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 and to be functional and to lift weights. You don't. You might not be setting world records, but you're going to be doing a lot better in your life than the people who don't. So it's a choice and, and it's, it's a matter of personal discipline. So anyway, yeah. I guess that's a good place to end it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this was a good, was it as good for you as it was for me? <laughs> yes, yes, it was. <laughs> um, but look, uh, T.S. Eliot's still on the docket. Maybe we should do this again, specifically yeah. on T. I, I didn't do all the C.S. Eliot preparation for nothing, yeah. right? So We should um, totally do that. Um, yeah. yeah, and, and we'll, we'll, let's just do it again, and we'll just do yep. a poetry thing. Mm -hmm, exactly. All right, this was very good. Thank you guys for uh, watching. If you're listening to the audio podcast, you could also find this conversation uh, on our YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is Automachination. You could find it in the show notes. Um, if you haven't hit like, please do so. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. And I'll see you again soon. Oh my god. Oh my god.